Alright, welcome back to another edition of the Road Dogs Podcast. I am your host, Nick Shaw, joined by my cousin and co-host, Josh Shaw. Josh, say hi. Company leader to identify Baker team, Rambo, Messner, Ortega, Coletta, Jorgensen, Danforth, Barry, Krauchauer, confirm. We're in. I'm Colonel Troutman this week. My mic sounds better. I bought a webcam today. My I don't really know where to – I feel like I'm like John J. Rambert now because like my eyes are twitching. I don't know where to look right now. I'm just scanning around to like have a good eyeline for you. We're back in the jungle, babe. We're back, we're back in the forces of, of Nam, a.k.a. Discord, where we record a podcast. <laughs> That's right, folks. Welcome back. Uh, Josh, what are we talking about this week? We're talking about people. First Blood, man. We're talking about First Blood. Um, so it was my pick after Nick was like, Hey, let's do a movie neither of us have seen. I decided to pick a movie that I've seen probably too much in my life and, and, a, and an actor I've thought about too much. And it's almost perfect because we teased it last week when you we were talking about how the Wachowskis uh wrote a Sylvester Stallone movie called Assassins. And we also mentioned a lot with Wachowskis that they were really self starters who did stuff their own. They had that what business, the the elevator business, Nick. It started out as a painting business. Yeah, they're installing <laughs> elevator shafts without plans. Yeah. Wild. And I think the guy that they owe a lot to, not like literally, I, I, it's just a guy that came before them that paved the way for that type of idea to actually be real, is Sylvester Stallone. And um, I, we're going to do First Blood because I feel like Rocky, <laughs> I pitched Rocky to you and you're like, no, we're not doing it. Everyone's talked about Rocky. <laughs> There's just movies that like I just feel like it... It's low-hanging fruit, you know. Mm. I I enjoy doing this movie much more than I would have Rocky. You know that movie is great, but it's it's been lauded over and picked apart. I just think that's kind of the easy route to take. And and, and you know, First Blood has too. It's an extremely popular movie as well. I can't <laughs> sit here and act like it's not. You know, one of the biggest movies of his career. But I just think that there's more to chew, more fat to chew on with something like this than maybe. Rocky I mean, or something yeah, else. this isn't Nighthawks. We're not going that deep to be like, dude, Nighthawks. Let's go Stallone. Um, I think who's the other guy? Lando. Why am I blanking on Lando's name? Billy D. Williams is in that movie. I think. Good. Good time. Yeah. We're not doing Paradise Alley either. <laughs> I don't want to do that. No Cobra. <laughs> no Cobra. <laughs> Um, I, I was wondering though, are you more of a Rambo or a Rocky guy? I feel like I know the answer. Yeah. Only out of the fact, because it's, it's actually kind of funny. My grandfather only owned the Rocky movies. He had what? plenty, like, he had plenty of <laughs> options to like get other, you know, VHSs. But I distinctly remember him having the uh, Rocky like VHS box set. So I saw all of those as a kid growing up. So almost just because they were there, those Probably over a Rambo. Plus, the Rambo movies just kind of get, as I'm sure we'll talk about, absurd as they go on. <laughs> I mean, well, Rocky's tangible in a way that Rambo isn't to me. Almost, where like Rocky one or two are very almost biopics, and the, oh, we're devolving to the Rocky podcast. We should probably stop. Um, but yes, Rocky's Rocky's the better character, flat out. Um, so then, how did you come to Rambo? Super late in life. Actually, really? this is another super late in life movies for me. Yeah. I saw this, uh, I think it was in Connecticut. I was on the road for work with someone who's from Washington State, actually, which is kind of interesting. Whoa. And it was just on TV. And he went to sleep. And I was like, all right, I'm going to stay up and watch this. I've never seen it. It's one of those movies like you always catch at like halfway point or whatever. So I had the time and I was like, you know what? It's finally time to see First Blood. And I really enjoyed it. I didn't like. It didn't blow me away, and I still don't think it does, but I think it has some things that are interesting that we can talk about. Um, 
But what I love about this movie, and this is kind of like a, a pretty obvious point, but I think it's something to really talk about. Like, this is an exterior movie. Mm. You know, it's really like a performance that requires a lot of physicality, not a lot of words said. And I think this is like one of Stallone's finest acting performances when it comes to things like that. Like, that regard has to be taken into consideration. And, you know, almost to the point where you're like, well, yeah, it's quiet, silent type, but he also has a really great monologue at the end of this movie mm. where he completely loses it and, like, his masculine energy is kind of completely gone but like i really enjoyed um the movie for kind of the context of the the social climate of that period now that i'd seen it with some older eyes Mm. so i had first seen this when i was probably much younger than you i was probably i would guess 14 15 um (laughs) and this brings us to one of the things i wanted to ask you about do you remember my like stallone phase when i was really like young yeah yeah, <laughs> were you concerned from like an outsider's perspective watching this like fourteen year old like devote his life to Sylvester Stallone? I wasn't concerned. I was more like, <laughs> "This is a phase, and it'll go away." And maybe because, maybe because I have gone through similar things where I'm like, "Oh yeah, I gravitate to this person, and now that's just like my identity. That's part of my personality." You're finding yourself at that age, so yeah, I didn't think it would last forever, and. You know, no offense to you, but uh, I, I saw, I've, I've seen you play sports. I've seen you in the gym. You know, I was like, I don't think we have too much to worry about. I don't think he's knocking me out anytime soon. I think I'm safe in that regard. So, yeah, I wasn't going to go and list and be like Rambo. I was just like, I like the bandana. Give me a bandana. Um, I would love to see you try and jump rope, though. That'd be kind of fun to watch. I, I, this is an odd fun fact, but I don't think I've really ever tried to jump rope. Maybe besides like one or two times and it didn't go well. Wow. Well. What a I mean, notoriously poor hand-eye coordination is my kind of like game, so it, it wasn't in the cards. But um, <laughs> yeah, I was a big Stallone guy in in high school for some reason. I had the Rocky poster above my bed. I saw Creed opening weekend. I watched Over the Top one day with a friend. If we saw Creed together, that's right. Afterwards, yeah. I saw Creed twice in theaters, <laughs> which for like fourteen years old. You know, not going to toot my own horn, but I'm pretty fucking cool. And um, <laughs> I like made a friend come over and I was like, dude, there's a slow movie on Netflix. I haven't seen it called Over the Top. It's about arm wrestling. Let's watch it. He's like, I don't know. And then I just put it on before he could really protest further. I would just um, like to say something right there real quick. The, the yeah. way those two sentences came together right there were really interesting. How you lauded yourself for being really mm-hmm. cool. And then in the following <laughs> sentence, you said, I made a friend come over. And watch this documentary <laughs> with me. No, it was a do- it was not a documentary. It was it was over the top. The Stallone arm wrestling movie. We got the oh, backwards oh, hat. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I mean, which familiar. which is even less impressive because I wasn't like, come on over, let's watch Rocky or like Rambo or like one of the better ones is like over the top, bro. Arm wrestling. Over, let's go. Come over and watch the C tier Stallone with me. And I can't really remember how I got into the Stallone thing. There was like multiple things going on at the time. Um, a movie podcast that I liked. There was a guy who talked about Stallone a lot in the build up to Creed. And after like hearing so much about it, I was like, oh, let me watch Stallone. Um, but I think the bigger thing was, I mean, we've already talked about it now. I wasn't athletic. <laughs> I wasn't a whiz kid. I wasn't super attractive going into high school and middle school. And I needed a way to kind of set myself apart genuinely, but also as kind of a gimmick to feel like I was somewhere in the like stratosphere of the popularity grounds. I mean, that's what high school kids do. They try and like do things to make themselves different. And, um, you know, mine was Sylvester Stallone. (laughs) I, I I still don't know why, but 
I did this thing on Instagram for like a couple of weeks where like every Friday I'd post like an eighties action picture of like Stallone and Schwarzenegger like dancing. And I put like a really unfunny caption under it. And it was kind of my shtick for a while. And then I got older and I was like, this is pretty stupid. And I kind of gave up. Um, <laughs> but I've always kept a hold of Stallone in a way that I didn't over any other 80s star. Because I think we've touched on something already is that like Stallone just feels far more real and personal and like dedicated to something in a way that those other guys weren't. To me, he's the only guy of his like era that really cared. Whether it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, John Claude Van Damme, any of the other guys, it's like let me be the biggest star in the world, or like let me be the biggest draw at the box office. With Stallone, I think it's much more let me invest into the character, let me like be a part of the editing process, let me write this film, let me direct this film. In the mm. case of you know some of the other ones, so to me, he's like you said before we started, he's an artist first and like an action star second. And I mean, we're going to talk about how that paradigm shifts over time, and whether it's good or bad, or what could have been with Stallone. But I think it's undeniable that going into First Blood, and we'll go into this much more detail as we go through like, the production history, Stallone cares. This isn't just a job for him. This is something he's really, really passionate about and wanted to tell a story of. And <laughs> I'm sorry, but that makes it better than anyone else. <laughs> like, you can't compare Arnold's run of Commando and all that stuff, and it's great. But Stallone's run from 76 on to 82. It's just it's just a feat of like actual just great filmmaking that has held up in a way that you don't look at with like a like an asterisk. You'd be like, oh, that's a fun 80s movie going back to it. Now you look at Rocky and Rocky 2, and I would even argue parts of Fist maybe, and First Blood, and you go, oh, these are real movies trying to say real things about real people. I, I agree with you. Uh, I, I kind of strain with Rocky 2 at moments. Well, I'm a Rocky 2 <laughs> defender. Rocky 2 gets pretty big at moments, but it's a good movie, and I think it's a solid sequel. But I get, I get what you're saying. You know, there is a clear actor, you know, in, in all of those performances. It's not just about the physicality, mm. which is kind of something that I think we talked about with, like, Roddy Piper, too. Like, there wasn't really a lot of these guys who were really kind of maybe going for something a little bit more dramatic. It was really either, like, muscle-bound and ripped and, like, doing the workouts or, you know, you're like the silent Marlon Brando character actor, whereas I feel like he was he didn't fully get there, but I think there was almost this little crossover of both for a period of time for him. And while yes. that was one of his biggest strong suits, I also think it's probably what led to like one of his biggest like slide backs, you know? You could say a slide back, if you will. Um <laughs> <Nothing> is over <laughs> <laughs> uh, but your point about the slide in that moment, this is why I ultimately picked first blood over Rocky. Um, is that this is the moment that decides everything for Sylvester Stallone. It's a movie that is trying to do both the things that he started his career as and then what he became, which is just a drama with a really context or complex, layered performance of subdued stuff and emotions and masculinity, the way it is in Rocky. But then there's explosions and chases and gunfights and knives to people's throats. And because this movie and Rocky Three are in the same year of 1982, and they make the money they make and are beloved the way they are, that is why you get the Sylvester Stallone you get. And so this coming back to this movie now, in 2023, it was almost like revisiting an old friend of me. Because I go back to the first Rocky way more than I go back to Rocky IV at this point in my life. And it was fun to go back and be like, oh man, like here's this raw talent <laughs> that, that changed over his career. Um, and I would also say that like I don't like this movie as much as I used to now. Going back to it, I do find it slow. 
and like the 20 minute breaks between well there's like 20 minute breaks where like nothing's really happening and Krenna and and Dennehy are just talking and it's fine some of it's good but it's there's a lot of downtime in between we're like all right Rambo's running through the woods again and he's running through the woods again and he's running through the woods again but the highs of it <laughs> the highs of this movie are so goddamn good whether we're talking about like the explosions, the actual chases themselves, jumping off of a cliff, holding onto the cliff, the rats, the tree-like stunt. Um, the camera work is incredible. The camera work is incredible. And then, like, the emotional and timely thematic highs are just, like, they still hit me just the same as they did back then. No, definitely. Um, and I found some more social context, too, about the time period as well that I didn't find when I was younger. Also, other thing about this movie is Troutman. Mm. I know we're going to get into him later. That performance keeps this movie alive when it's interior. I know you were just talking about the pacing, and that's kind of what I wanted to, want to talk about a little. It's just anytime he is on the screen, I'm fully engaged. Like, mm-hmm. I don't even care that we're not in, like on the Rambo storyline. Um, and like another brilliant thing that it does, it just like parcels out enough information to keep you engaged, but it doesn't give you the whole backstory of like how, how they became, you know, Troutman got Rambo under this, like almost what seems like mind control is like teasing a little bit. Um, that's really brilliant. Like story writing, but also just a fucking on fire performance by Krenna, just going (laughs) hundred miles per hour from the first frame. He's in this movie. And what the brilliant thing that they do too, is they introduce his character off screen, just a line of dialogue that brings him into the film. And it's like, What's that? So it's like that guy is immediately there to grab your attention. You said one of the craziest things I've heard in the show when we did the Slapshot episode. And you said the Hanson Brothers entrance is one of the best entrances in movie history. And I was like, oh, I mean, I like Slapshot, Nick, but I don't, I don't know if I can, I can take that one. But this, this is. The way that Dennehy slides it up where he's like, what possessed God to make Rambo? And then just Krenna's voice off screen going, God didn't make Rambo. I did. Like the <laughs> delivery, the like naturalism he feels about it where like he's he's monotone, he's flat. He's just like, I made John Lamb. I made this monster that's just tearing you apart. God, Richard Krenna's just terrific in this movie. It's incredible. Great white shark performance just – up screen time just crushing it yeah i i could have taken you you say this movie's paced kind of oddly i don't know i was clocking it because minute 16 is like when rambo breaks out of the prison mm-hmm. and the movie's an hour and 36 minutes maybe a little bit longer can correct me if i'm wrong but i would i thought it moved rather briskly and like yeah we'll get into it later in the show i don't want <laughs> to we're spilling a lot of tea early on the spill the we're tea spilling podcast. a lot of tea but i think the the chasing amy is one of my favorite episodes that we did because we spilled the tea early and actually talked about this Kevin Smith and deep. And I only bring that up partly because it's a good segue to this is that Stallone is another person like Kevin Smith that I have such a complicated relationship with, not for anything that he's done personally to anyone that's a cancelable offense, but just because the, the what ifs are that are along that career. And I'm, I look at the things he does now and I'm like, really, we're doing Rambo last blood or Samaritan or expendables five. And then I look back at where his career started, and I always just go like, "Man, why didn't you do something different?" It's a, it's probably one of the biggest Hollywood what ifs. I mean, also, like, I'm not trying to like say this in a weird way, you know, to stir up any like nationality yeah. <laughs> sentiments, but like, he's an Amer, he's an American, you know, he's an Italian American boy from New York. He's like, that's our guy, you know, at that period of time mm-hmm. in the world. Whereas, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger's from Austria. You know, John v- Claude Van Damme is not from the United States. Like, it was more like the, like, invasion of that genre of, like, being, you know, 
a, a more like open to the world whereas like stallone is like the american dream of like down on his ass creative guy who gets this big break and just shoots up to the stars and yeah i totally agree with you there's probably a decade to a decade and a half in there where you're like God, there's so much opportunity there's so many projects that he would have been great for that he just didn't get yeah. the chance for whether that's by design or not i mean i'm sure it's up for debate but the um the Stallone career is something we're going to talk about in depth throughout the show as we go on because it is genuinely something that I've spent many days wondering about. And in the preparation for this episode, I went and watched uh, the documentary Sly that he worked with on Netflix, which is about his whole life. And you're so right in the sense of like the Stallone story is so American because of everything that it entails, which is that he wrote Rocky in three days. He, I mean, everyone knows the story, so I'm not going to like go on too long, but he goes to the studio and they say, Hey, here's a bunch of money. Well, here's the script. Take the money. See you later. You're done. And he goes, no, I'm starring in this movie. I'm starring in this movie. I'm the writer of this movie. I'm going to be involved in every step of the way. And if I'm not going to be able to star in this movie, you're not making this movie. I'm not taking that deal. And I think, <laughs> I think as the eighties go on, it's why Rocky four becomes literally the cold war movie. And then like, like he is a symbolism of America versus Cold War Russia in that movie. It's mm-hmm. it's not subtle at all. He's he's the definition of Americana throughout that time in a way that is so gaudy too, is the perfect thing about it. Is that Rocky Four and Rocky Three are so gaudy and so expensive looking. And the rest of his career throughout that time is just like bloated and confusing and confounding and it feels like just reaganomics splitting through the frame to be like oh look what they can do man they can make anything they want now they can go make oscar in the 90s you know <laughs> and give that movie even the budget. it's weird because even at their lowest like the schwarzenegger movies let's just take him for example it's like oh, that was pretty bad total recalls like probably like what the highest regard for like some of those are you know you watch like uh um, collateral damage or something. It's like, all right, he's older, but he's like still taking on 20 guys at once and <laughs> shooting yeah. these machine guns while he's unbuckled on top of a Jeep, just looking ripped. It's like, oh, yeah, he's just, that's all natural. But like his lowest of lows, even those movies to me just feel so much more entertaining and like, I don't know, maybe genuine because that's all Arnold really ever did was be kind of an action star. <laughs> that when Stallone bottoms out, it just feels so much worse. Because like exactly what we're saying, it's like, dude, you you are so much bigger and better than this. Like, ah, I don't want to talk. <laughs> I don't want to talk about stuff where my mom will shoot because it might bring me to tears to be like, my guy <laughs> poured in three, mo- <laughs> three months three right months on a movie called Stop Exclamation Mark or my mom will shoot with him and Estelle Getty <laughs> or the fact that he made Judge Dredd. Or daylight, I like. Uh, there's just so many misses throughout, which we'll get to. Like, I hate to keep just saying it, but I promise you, we'll get to like this one thing in depth. Um, and and the fact that and this is just the last tease we'll do here before we get into the production history with First Blood. Every time Stallone, I think, tried to break out of the mold he made for himself, it either didn't work or people didn't like it, and then he just goes back in instead of instead of trying to just keep going, he just goes back in, and it's the most saddest thing about this career. Yeah, um, it's the Tom Cruise thing we talked about, but yeah, let's hop onto the production. Let's hop onto the production. First Blood is based on David Morrell's 1972 novel of the same name. I have read this book. I read this in high school as part of my Stallone journey because uh, the teachers were, did this crazy thing back then telling students to read a book. And um, back back in 2014, Nick, <laughs> you were supposed to read books in class and actually pay attention and learn and uh, educate yourself about the world in your own free time. 
they like spaced what? out. <laughs> yeah, they spaced out thirty minutes. To be like, read a book, kids. Don't go on YouTube. And when I was like, all right, well, I need a book. It's going to entertain me, but also inform me. And I was in the Stallone phase. I was like, oh, first blood, bingo, bango, got it. Read it all through that, that class and just like terrific book. And there's two things about his life that are really worth mentioning and how it pertains to first blood uh, is that Morel is not an American. He's actually Canadian. Uh, he is a contemporary, but not really a countryman to American Vietnam vets. He's around that same age, maybe three or four years older. Uh, and the other thing is that like after graduating from Canada, St. Jerome University in 1966, he goes to Penn State. And what's important about that is that Penn State and their students were really outspoken against Vietnam while David Moreau was there. Yeah. There are protesters and posters on the campus in 1965. There's students marching or organizing a march on Washington protest in 1967. The campus holds a Vietnam week. These are kind of like the sphere and area that uh, David Moreau is kind of learning about and kind of experiencing America firsthand. And it's kind of something that I would imagine he definitely witnessed, if not participated in. And I think this experience is just paramount to first blood. Uh, and this kind of formation and foundation always solidified as he goes to become a professor in English literature. And at that time, he stays in America. At that time, Vietnam vets are coming back from the war. They're using the GI Bill to go to school. And he starts having Vietnam vets who are actually students of his. And he would spend time with them after class. And he would be like, hey, what's going on? Like, how come this assignment isn't working? Or how come you're not making this deadline? And they'd actually talk. <laughs> they'd talk. They'd get to know each other. He'd hear about their experiences and how like a backfire of a car sends them to the ground, their PTSD, their trauma. And um, he just really got into the mud about like the people in his life that he cared about and really trying to understand the situation around him. At that point in America, yeah, it's it's unavoidable. I mean, I think like our mind probably gravitates towards the Kent State one. That's the biggest one. That's mm -hmm. obviously the most tragic one. Um, but that was something that was going across the country at the time. Like UC Berkeley, I think Stanford had a big one too. Just like, yeah, obviously a very contentious time in America. And we've talked about on the show what I think is also unique about that is getting that outsider perspective. You know, it's it's very unique and it's something that like I don't think we – really can like put our finger on but just somebody who can have that kind of fishbowl perspective to be like i know that i'm not necessarily like you said a countryman i'm not a mm -hmm. part of this but like i'm profoundly affected by these people that i care about because they're my students and like what was this whole experience for them you know i just i, I always appreciate when we have that happen on the show even if it's by kind of coincidence yeah and the other part is that i think first blood can only be written by a young person at this time i there's no 50 year old mm -hmm that can write this movie because they would identify with Troutman more than they did with Rambo. I was um, gonna say, or Teasel. Or Teasel, absolutely. And the interesting thing about First Blood, the novel, is that it switches perspectives between Rambo and Teasel. So it's not... Ooh. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a good book, actually. It's a legitimately good book. <laughs> um, but it would switch, whereas I feel like if this was written by an older man, they focus far more on one or the other, or they just don't have the empathy to even come up with the idea of a Vietnam vet struggling to reintegrate in society. And so David Morrell pointed the story, just a good guy. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know much more about him. So if there's some controversy I, I haven't researched yet, whoops. But from everything I've read, seems like a really good guy. Um, and so he combines all these experiences with the Vietnam as both a student, as a professor, and he writes for his blood. And he thinks this idea of telling a story about Vietnam vets as they are, not as how the media kind of portrays them to be. Because that's the other thing we should mention here is that around 72, um, Vietnam vets were not looked at as empathetically as they are now. 
I mean, you probably know more about this than I do because you've done more research into the war and kind of like that whole era. So if you want to talk about it, you know, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I obviously never served, so I don't know what that experience is like. But just from all like my research and reading about the Vietnam War, it's just everything that I've gathered. It seems to me it's the first time where our involvement and motivations are almost purely dishonorable. Whereas we, as a country before, had these kind of noble notions towards war. We understood the cost and the totality of war, World War One, World War Two. But there's a clear common goal and a clear common enemy or evil when it came to those wars. Um, the lines are really murky, and there's a lot of stuff that happened during the Vietnam War that's just, you know, they're war, they're war crimes. It's, they're atrocities. It's terrible, some of the things that we did to people over there. But that doesn't make, you know vast majority of vietnam veterans guilty and like it seems like a generation that came back of just really sullen broken um drug a lot of drug problems you know in vietnam opium it's a huge problem with troops so just a generation that really was just treated with like disrespect from the moment they got back and fighting for a cause that they really had no say in um and it kind of begins that ever churning cycle of the military industrial complex and greed and this is a very sad sad situation for people of vietnam and american veterans yeah i mean the the most popular thing was that uh vet veterans would come home and they'd be called baby killers and just really really awful names and uh, there's a lot of bad apples in vietnam not just at the top there were bad soldiers i mean <laughs> it's unavoidable in any war that war and gunfire is going to attract the worst kind of people as much as it's gonna it brings out the people. worst in humanity yeah. absolutely uh there's a ton of movies about this if you want to really go more in depth but the vast majority of soldiers came back scarred for a war they didn't really believe in to a country that didn't believe in them or care for them and that is why first blood can be written because it is kind of a zag at the time of a young guy reminded the nation like hey no like these vets didn't want to do this you know, Rambo has a beautiful line in this movie. Like, this wasn't my war. I didn't go there to go fight this war. I went because I was probably drafted. I, I mean, this is me speculating now, but he was probably drafted or he comes from a conservative upbringing that encouraged him to go sign up for the war and do something good with his time. You know, I don't think Rambo comes from, <laughs> he comes from a blue collar circumstance, I feel. And that's the important thing that Morel kind of puts into first blood. And the book is released in 1972. It's received well, but it's not really a cultural touchstone the way it is now. Um, but he does go, pretty quickly to like film studios and he's like hey here's this movie idea what do you want to do with it columbia buys the rights for one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars. <laughs> just insane amount of money to throw around in the 70s for for a first blood um and they go to richard brooks who's the director behind like blackboard jungle cat on a hot tin roof in cold blood and they want him to be the director and um Brooks intended for the movie to kind of showcase the different American perceptions of World War II and Vietnam. He was going to have Teasel be more sympathetic than in the novel, because the novel is much more like the film, where Teasel is pretty reprehensible and just a complete asshole. Um, whereas Brooks wanted to be like, what if Teasel was a World War II vet that was similarly scarred? And so there's an identification between him and Rambo. Um, and ultimately, Brooks's movie was going to end with Teasel ordering his men to kind of put down his guns and try and reason with Rambo. And we probably would have like had a peaceful resolution. Um, I hate that idea. <laughs> I, I hate it so much. It doesn't make any sense. Um, I think Teasel is great as the villain in this because he's just old enough to not have a war. that He went to fight on it for his own. So he has this kind of obvious, you know, 
easy programmed in disdain for Vietnam veterans, but it's also probably because he's a little bit jealous and envious that he didn't have that fight to go to. Does that make sense to you? You know what I mean? Well, he's also emasculated, I think, at large, because here comes this burly guy that won't take any orders from him. Um, mm-hmm. 100%. And to our point... Well, no that, one takes orders from him. <laughs> well, no one takes orders from Teasel. But to our point about how this movie had to be at least written, or the book has to be written by an older person that could kind of, or a younger person that could see the situation for what it was. Richard Brooks was born in 1912. That's why I think he comes into this movie and this project going with the approach that he wants to do because he thinks of the great war of World War II and heroes and icons and, and like those are the greatest generation, whereas these 70s kids are obviously victims of their circumstance, but much more, there's a nobler way I think he probably views the war. Uh, the other reason, and the bigger reason that this movie wouldn't work, is that Brooks wanted to have Betty Davis in the movie and was like, yeah, she's a psychiatrist and we're going to like cut between her and Rambo talking or her trying to reason with Rambo. And that's the movie. And he was like, we're going to have Burt Lancaster or Lee Marvin as Sheriff Teasel. And that was his pitch. I, it's not good. Give me Burt Lancaster in there just as somewhere in the cast but like as far as all those other ideas there's there's some other ideas that get thrown out during the production of first blood that are just absolute dog shit from <laughs> some very famous creatives i'm excited to talk about later down the road i was waiting to bring this up and to like prep the audience for this and what lies ahead there is a ton of just like insane things that people suggested with this movie and there's a reason why the story that we're talking about starts in 72 and the movie's not finished for another decade there's just a lot of fits <laughs> and starts <laughs> <laughs> Burt Lancaster or uh, Lee Marvin, terrified, idea, terrible ideas for Sheriff Teasel because they're actually good guys and they can portray just a good human being. I think for the most part, they just come across as stand-up guys, uh, if not a little bit like a raps, like a rascal. But I don't look at either of them and go like, ah, oh, that's like a guy who I just don't like on on site. Yeah, fair. Pre-production gets so far along with Brooks's idea that they plan to start shooting New Mexico in December of 1972. Um, but at that time, the studio kind of says, hey, the war's still going on. That's the craziest part about all of this at the time is Vietnam is still going on as they're kind of heading into production. And Columbia says, we don't feel comfortable making a movie about this right now because the war's still going on. Veterans are still coming home. So the whole thing just kind of falls apart and Brooks basically leaves. Warner Brothers then picks up the rights to First Blood for another $125,000. Again, Jesus. David Morrell just pocketed cash from all of this, baby. Just like, I don't know what the residuals are in the 70s, but like, goddamn. What a, what, a, what a day to be like, oh, I wrote this one book. It was okay. Oh, 125000 here, 125000 there. And just like, he's good for at least a decade. <laughs> Sitting in his pool on a floaty. Yeah, being like, oh, man, this is great. <laughs> That Rambo money, son. That that Rambo, that Vietnam blood money, baby. Let's go. Um, See this Rambo money? Just bought me that brand new Corvette. (laughs) Hopefully another studio buys the rights for another $125,000. let us go, baby. (laughs) Anti-war. Warner Brothers' idea when they buy the rights is they're going to cast a Nero or Clint Eastwood as Rambo. One of those is a good idea. I think De Niro, obviously. I mean, De Niro could have bodied this role. I'm, I mean, it'd have to be a yeah. different movie, but like, I kind of want to go and do the teleportation machine to go see De Niro's first blood. I mean, he's in The Deer Hunter. I mean, that performance is... How far off is that from, from John Rambo? Quite a bit, probably, in yeah. proximity. But like, as far as like his Vietnam movie, you got that. You know, I think that's an, that movie's amazing. 
Oh my god! I mean, that's another movie we can't touch on the show because it's just like, what else are we gonna say about the Deer Hunter? It's just masterpiece. Yeah, and there's so much history with Michael Cimino after the release of that too. It would mm-hmm. just be, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, uh, with the De Niro idea, Walter Newman writes a script with Martin Ritt. He's the writer between The Long Hot Summer, HUD, The Great White Hope, and he's attached to direct. And Newman's version would have leaned a different way than Brooks, which is he wanted Troutman to be the villain, and he wanted the movie to end up with Rambo and Teasel both dying rather than a peaceful confrontation. Um, and I think that's a decent idea. Um but I, it still leaves a little bit to desired. And while Ritt is working on the film, he intends to cast Robert Mitchum as Teasel. And then surprise, surprise, you know, given his work with <laughs> Paul Newman and HUD and the great and the great long hot summer, he wants Newman to be Rambo, which is look, I love Paul Newman. He's my guy. He's one of the hottest men ever, but like, he's not right for Rambo. He's way too old for this part in the seventies. No, yeah, and that's not his generation. It would just feel out of place with him in that role. I don't think that would have worked. No, not at all. So Sidney Pollock and Martin Bergman, uh, Sidney Pollock from Enough Said, Martin Bergman from Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, Scarface, they're also considered to kind of take over all the projects of WB. Bergman hires David Rabe to write the script. Uh, Pollock, while he's also working on the idea, he has different ideas for the movie. He considers Steve McQueen for Rambo, <laughs> but then realizes Steve Jesus. McQueen. <laughs> Steve McQueen was born in 1930. It would have been a 43 43-year-old Vietnam vet. And so he he kind of throws that aside. And then Pollock also considers like it's Burt Reynolds. No, no way. It's Robert Redford, who's way too pretty for Rambo. But then, Nick, this is the this is the name I hid from you because I didn't want you to see. Do you have any guesses who he wanted to play Rambo? I'm gonna take a, a stab in the dark. I think I've said this guy a couple times, couple times when these come up. I'm gonna say Robert Duvall. It was not Robert Duvall. Um, mm-hmm. Sidney Pollock wanted James Caan as Rambo. Mm-hmm. Wow, really? That's a, that's not the reaction I expected. Well, again, just like I think. Age is a huge part for this role, and mm-hmm. whether it's the writing of the project or it's the production of the project, and those both those guys, like you said, Burt Reynolds, and I was like, well, kinda, and then I thought about it for a second, I'm like, but you know, Burt Reynolds is like, Burt Reynolds is starring in shows as like a thirty year old man, you know, at this point in his career in movies, yeah. so like, we're getting kind of close to like, I don't know how realistic that would be, and like Robert Redford, I just I kind of have some issues with as an actor, so I don't really. Would care to see him in this movie, <laughs> um, and nor do I think he has the physicality. Watch uh, Three Days of the Condor. Watch how he holds a pistol. I mean, just no one ever holds a gun like that. It makes me so mad when I watch that movie. Uh, wow. But Jimmy Conn to me just feels again like also somebody who like I, I don't want to speak for the man as if I know or knew, <laughs> but seems a little more right leaning to the point that I would be a little skeptical of him portraying a kind of like burnt out. Born apart Vietnam vet. So Khan is born in 1940. At this time when the project is is at Warner Brothers, he would have been at least 32, 33. I don't think it's implausible. And I think he kind of could bring that raw animalistic coldness that Rambo has at the start of the movie. I can picture him talking to um, Delmar's mother in that scene. I can picture James Khan doing that. And I can picture him delivering the op- the closing monologue in a really powerful, profound way. And I think James Khan just has what those other two guys don't have, which is like a dirtiness to him. I buy James Khan like in the woods, running around a little bit more, going crazy, 
way more than I do Robert Redford or Burt Reynolds. I don't know. I mean, have you seen Deliverance? Well, <laughs> it's a fair point. It's a fair point. I don't know. I just consider Burt Reynolds too machismo. A handsome debonair. Yeah, yeah. I get it. You'd have to have the chest hair out at all times. You know, the only weird decision that Stallone, I feel like, had to have made in this was he has a headband on in this yeah. movie. You know, there's a part where Rambo doesn't have a headband, and then there's a part where he just does in this yeah. movie, which is just has to be a Stallone choice where he was just like, I'm not going to do the impression. That's just I can do it if you want. If you, if you read somebody with like, Stallone impression, I worked on it for a while. Hey, give me a bandana. <laughs> No, but it does feel like there's no scene where he finds something in the woods that he makes a bandana. He just suddenly has it on. It's like, where did he get that? He cuts that tarp up, but they cut away real yeah. quick, so you don't really know. Maybe he did it out of the tarp. Well, no, but the bandana is clearly red, whereas like the tarp is like a like a dull canvas brown. Like so I, burgundy, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, Bergman basically leaves the project afterwards, and then Mike Nichols. <laughs> he considers directing. We can't get rid of Mike Nichols on the show. He considers it's directing. <laughs> he considers directing Rabe's script, but then I think he actually got busy with Day of the Dolphin. Because again, at this point, the rights are with Warner Brothers. The last date we had was December 1972, which is when uh, Columbia banned the movie. Day of the Dolphin 74. It's not implausible. This was at Warner Brothers around this time or shortly thereafter. He was like, ah, I just did my war epic. Day of the Dolphin. Can't do another one, guys. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Rabe, kind of like every other goddamn person involved in this production at this point, has his own dream Rambo. It's Al Pacino, uh, which is interesting. But Pacino never really got far. He thought the movie was way too dark, which is kind of weird considering the guy who played Satan twice in two movies around this time. But, you know, whatever, Al. Well, that's all right because he's way too small. So, Well, he's just a her- – it's like when they were like, oh, he should play Paul Newman's role in Slapshot. It's like what are we thinking back then of the Savage? We're trying to put like Al Pacino in these roles. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Finally, some stability kind of comes to the project in 1977. Uh, William Sackheim and Michael Causal start writing the screenplay that becomes the main basis for the movie. All these other versions that we're talking about are so different and weird, more of which we'll get to later. But their kind of movie and their script is basically what we kind of get to some degree. Um, it's their idea that <laughs> John Batham of Saturday Night Fever would direct the movie. Again, another just like, what? The guy who made Saturday Night Fever is going to direct Rambo? Surprisingly, he wants John Travolta as Rambo, which is no. Yeah, I, I, could you imagine? <laughs> That's a blind spot for me because I've never seen Saturday Night Fever. I'm going to make a confession on the cast, and I haven't seen a lot of young Travolta, so I can't really speak. But it, I, maybe I could say maybe on that. I could, say, I could say maybe. I just can't imagine Danny Zuko delivering like harrowing lines of dialogue or like running through the woods. I guess there's something about like he just seems too clean to me. You do first blood, man. <laughs> Nothing is ever over, dude. Come on, it's me, John Travolta. <laughs> like it just—it doesn't work, especially when they're getting to the guy who just made him ham it up in Saturday Night Fever. Be the guy who's going to direct him here. It's kind of like, come on, not a good idea. Uh, Batam also wants again Day of the Dolphin High stand up. He wants George C. Scott as Troutman. Like we're just we're just hitting all our guys. That that could have worked for sure. We talk about George C. Scott and Day of the Dolphin. Fa, bay, food, pa. Don't look away. (laughs) 
actually supremely talented guy as much as we kind of rag a, on him. a very great yes like a, yes. a pros pro actor somebody who just completely rejected the idea of academy awards was like no i'm not nominated so i'm not even going to show up when i win it. it but a pros pro and also a pro asshole oh absolutely which is why i think i i almost want to see his troutman because he would have imbued himself with that and like i can imagine I, i'm in the theater in 1978 and you hear, what made God make John Rambo? Here, God didn't make John Rambo. I did. <laughs> like, I can picture that him with a stogie in his lips, just standing in Chewing that tent. stogie, yeah. Oh, yeah. He would have made Troutman, like, way more connival or conniving and just, like, a real, like, hog hog asshole. No doubt. Uh, he also wants either Gene Hackman or Charles during his Teasel. Hackman could probably do Teasel, I think. But he does feel a little too small for me. But I guess if, if we're going against John Travolta's Rambo, it, it makes some sense. Yeah. I mean, also somebody who was a great person in real life, but also could play a great asshole. Mm-hmm. So I could see Gene Hackman as a teasel for sure. It's also worth mentioning that at some point during all of this, uh, while Batam is still involved, an offer is made to Robert Duvall to see if he'd want to play teasel. So I got a little close with Bobby Duvall. He's circling. He's buzzing around this. Bobby D kind of came around and circled this project, but he, he, it's a weird thing like him as Teasel, though. Yeah, he would like, he needs to draw out every word he says, and I think Teasel doesn't have enough words in this movie for him to yeah. just like enunciate every syllable. As much imagine, as I love him. I'm trying to imagine like Teasel's like one line of dialogue and Duvall just draws it out. Just is like, what made God make John Rambo? Like I don't know, just just what doesn't work for me. He also just feels too skinny and too like pencil necked. His version of Teasel is way less like I don't want to say like authoritative the way that Den he plays it, but Den he plays it as like that guy goes to the bar every night. He knows the same people who's been there for twenty years. Duval probably just goes home and is alone. I think. I think the Teasel performance is a little underrated. I think it's doing a lot of things. Yes. Yeah. I think Denny, he's really great in this role, but I think his version of Teasel versus Duvall's are completely different. Uh, John Badham, though, doesn't stick around like everyone else. Uh, but Carter D. Haven buys the Sackheim and Causal script from WB for, again, money just keeps coming to this movie. $375,000, again, just like throwing chump change around for First Blood. Morell just bought a new house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> David Morrell watched. Guess what? He just bought a new house in, in the Caribbean. He's just be- booing off of it. See this Rolex? I call it First Blood. <laughs> I call this the WB SATCOM causal script, baby. Let's go. <laughs> DeHaven gets a financer and hires John Frankenheimer. He directed 1962 as a Manchurian candidate, The Train, The French Connection 2. Uh, Frankenheimer's version is the first to feature Rambo actually surviving the film. Every other version up until this point had Rambo dying, very much like the book. The book's ending, um, while we're kind of talking about it very briefly, pretty bleak. I think I think Rambo and Teasel shoot each other at the same time, and then Troutman puts Rambo out of his misery. Pretty awful. Um, playing Rambo in Frankenheimer's version was going to be Powers Booth, Michael Douglas, Nick Nolte, or Dustin Hoffman. But Frankenheimer, of all those people, picks Brad Davis from Midnight Express, Chairs of Fire for Rambo. This also just doesn't work. The project stalls. The distributor goes away. And uh, Filmways is acquired by Orion Pictures. So another mess. Yeah. One of the things, too, that I think is brilliant about this movie is 
think Troutman or I think Teasel and Rambo killing each other kind of sends a mixed message that the movie is not trying to send. Where it's mm-hmm. like almost the Dark Knight thing with Harvey Dent, where it's like, do you live long enough to see yourself become the villain or do you die a hero? Which is like completely not what the end of this movie I think mm-hmm. is sending as a message. As much as the ending song, which just blows a bag of dicks, <laughs> would make you believe. Um the the that's just a skewed message i think that just doesn't really fit the script or any of those actors two things went back there um yeah i have never understood the song choice in this movie it is horrific it is awful we come down from this like uh, the only emotional catharsis in the movie to it's a long road when you're on your own it's like get out of here stop don't do that that." terrible awful 80 synth Oh, it's just around your own. <laughs> but it's like it's such a sad opening shot of them waiting Rambo to like prison basically. And then it's that song accompanied. It's like, guys. One other thing I have too that Stallone yeah. was definitely like we're doing this is like <laughs> if I'm in this movie, it ends on a freeze frame of me. Yeah. And the whole credits play on it. <laughs> you know, sometimes you get a freeze frame at the end of a movie like that from 1972. It's like, oh, cool, freeze frame for a couple seconds and then it fades away and we get to see the rest of the credits. No, the freeze frame stays the entire duration of the credits on Stallone, just sure open, chest out. Yeah. And cut <laughs> behind his back, looking sternly away from the camera. It's, it's so American. So well, he's done the freeze frame in Rocky One, he did it then. Because it ends, yeah, with the hand up and Adrian around his neck. We have it at the end of, uh, is it Rocky 3 to where it ends with him and Apollo about to punch each other and then we cut? Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. Stallone. Just, just a real guy who loves his still frames for ending frames, I guess. I don't know why. I don't know what's <laughs> up with that. Uh, but the other thing is the ending and this choice of, like, does Rambo live or die? Um, David Morell's version of this book or the story, it absolutely fits in 72. Um, at that point, you know, like we talked about historically, the idea of revention or redemption and hope for these Vietnam vets, it's, I wouldn't say, a, a, I wouldn't say there's no real like trace of it, but it feels very hopeless back then if you're one of those people. And I think the choice of Teasel and Rambo both paying for their sins and Troutman being the only one left, aka the US government standing over a corpse of dead bodies after a conflict, that it makes too, sense. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Whereas the version that we get ultimately at First Blood, when we're in 82, there is far more empathy and far more understanding at that point. And we'll talk about that change more in a little bit soon. We get to Stallone and his involvement in that choice. Um, It just makes far more sense in 82 than it does in 72. (laughs) So all of this brings us to people called Mario Kassar and Andrew G. Vagina. Just like electric names. I... I (laughs) Huh? Just electric names. Like I want to be named Mario. I'd love to have the last. I'd have like I'd love to have like a Josh T. Shaw. Like I've always just thought like having like the middle initial there would be kind of cool. You just got to become famous. That's the only. That's the only like barometer of like if you get to be like called by your full name or by your middle that's name. True. Just become true. famous and you get to put the initial in. Yeah, you don't see many people that are like Rochers being like, "Hey, I'm uh, Nicholas R. Yeah. Shaw." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just doesn't really have the same appeal. Kasser yeah. and Vajna come from Anabasis Investments. Uh, these guys are kind of working like Caracola Pictures, and they become friends with director Ted Kotcheff at the time. Uh, so we'll do a little Ted Kotcheff thing. He actually mentioned him in passing on the show already because he's the guy who directed Richard Dreyfus in The Apprenticeship of Teddy Kravitz. And for those who don't remember, 
Dreyfus only took the role of Hooper and Jaws after going to a screen of Duddy Kravitz and being like, boy, that is an awful movie and that's going to sink my career. So shout out to Ted Kotcheff there. But after Duddy, uh, Kotcheff kind of bounces around, but he lands on his feet with uh, North Dallas 40. I don't know if you've seen this movie, Nick. It's like a it's like a sports comedy, like buddy football movie. Yeah, it's a football about the Cowboys, right? I don't know if it's the actual Cowboys, but I does does is John Voight in that? I, Nick Nolte's in it. I know that for sure. Nick Nolte. Yeah, I've I've wanted to pick that for the show actually. So it's whoa, kind of it yeah, I thought about wow. it. We might be doing Ted Kotcheff December. Who knows where we're going, baby? I've never seen it. I've never seen it either, but it's reviewed really well at the time, and it makes twenty six point one million dollars at the box office. Unheard of for just like a sports comedy drama, whatever it is. Uh, and the success, yeah. yeah, it's crazy. This success, along with Duddy and his other work at that time, he's made a couple other good movies, makes Kotcheff and name studios would kind of want for First Blood. He's an experienced veteran. He can do with a stable production. Uh, but to call him kind of like the logical choice for this movie is kind of a, a step too far. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Kassar and Vashna, they become buddies with Kotcheff, and they're like, hey, man. We're starting this production company. We want to make a movie with you. And we're like, do you have any ideas? And Kotchev mentions this movie he worked on for three months in 1976, First Blood. Because at that point, when they're cycling through all these names, Ted Kotchev was one of them who spent, I think, three months or something like that and, and worked on the movie. Kassar and Vajna get a hold of reportedly 27 different scripts. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. That's like, that's why this movie takes 10 years to get made, is they have 27 different scripts. Of that stack, they purchased the the rights to WB for, oh, wait, we got David Morrell watch, $375,000. Again. <laughs> oh, oh, wait a minute. Hello? Oh, was that? Oh, that's David Morrell. He just called me. He bought a private jet. <laughs> wait a second, Nick. Wait a second, though, because Kassar and Vajna later bought the, the Sackheim and Causal script for $125,000. Oh, wait, what's that noise? Oh, I just I just heard the news, Nick. David Morell just bought an airplane jet fighter. He's going to fly it to Tahiti. He's, he's just going to be on the Monopoly box. He's going to be the new logo. Mom, Mom, who's on the Monopoly box now? Uh, David Morell? I, I, I don't know who this is. Morell-pully. <laughs> Morell-pully. <laughs> hey Boardwalk is now just First Blood. Um, Park Place is North <laughs> Dallas 40. We just renamed everything after Ted Koch, if ideas. Even with uh, a script and director attached, finally, of the Sackheim Causal script, Ted Koch is involved. First Blood is, is far from a sure thing. If this pre-production saga and then like recent news going around about what David Zaslav said, the canceling of the Acme versus Warner Brothers movie, uh, or w, whatever it was, if that teaches you anything, it's that like a movie is not released until it's actually on screen in front of a paying audience at this point. So Kachev knew all this, and he's like, look, <laughs> I was on this project before, didn't work out. The only way I get to like actually make this movie is if I get a big star to play Rambo. And his first choice mm-hmm. is Sylvester Stallone. Bubba Bowie. Yeah, I think the the other big like component as to why this takes so long to make is like you said, they're working on this during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we live in a time now where it's quite more prevalent that films come out about the subject material that's going on in the world around you but like back then that was like a pretty risky move that people didn't do you know uh, what's the first vietnam war movie maybe Ooh. apocalypse now that's a good question i want to or platoon 
maybe. Like, they're very... Rambo, First Blood's got to be one of the first ones out of the gate, too. So, you're dealing with a really sensitive topic matter that, like, at that time, it's just really not something that people do. It's, it's really kind of, like, put that on Broad Street. Well, So, the first one, according to my research, the real first big one, is the Green Braves with John Wayne. After that, you get a lot of South Vietnamese or just Vietnamese general movies from 71 up to 74. Uh, the first kind of U.S. one at that point is 74 with There Is Number number 13 or There Is No 13. Um, and then after that, you get a Vietnamese movie, a U.S. movie, The Boys and Company C. But it's 78, which is, I think is the first big one, which is The Deer Hunter, like we talked about. Um, yeah. The year after that. It's is a long time. Mm-hmm. So no one is really, I think, comfortable talking about the subject in a real meaningful way because it's hard. (laughs) It is an extremely touchy subject that when you're making a movie about this, I think no matter where you go, you're going to alienate one side of your audience immediately. There's the conservatives who will go like, I don't want to support these hippie, yuppie bastards if they're going to portray Vietnamese or Vietnam soldiers as real victims because that was a conservative response. Or there's a liberal response if you make the movie about the colonels or the people in charge of the war that are going to look at and go like, hey, those people are war criminals. So it's a really hard thing to have any studio want to commit to. 100%. And this is our our chance to talk about Stallone kind of uncaged. I I told Nick this before the show started, but like this is really just a sly cast for me. I just wanted to talk about Stallone in full and like – how the fact that we've talked about a lot of the big names in Hollywood history, but we've yet to get to Stallone. And so this felt like the perfect kind of place to go to it. Um, we all know the Stallone story. We kind of mentioned it earlier. He's near broke. He writes the stars of Rocky. That wins best picture. It wins best director for John G. Avildsen. Best editing, best original screenplay nomination for Stallone. Uh, after that, his career kind of dips. He has Fist in Paradise Alley. He shoots Rocky too. Uh, and then he goes Nighthawks and Escape to Victory in 81. Two kind of moderate successes, but nothing that's kind of blowing the door off. So Stallone comes to First Blood somewhere in the middle of his stardom where he's still a household name that's like, oh, that's Sylvester Stallone, Rocky. But he's not quite uh, at the peak of his powers the way he will be shortly. And so it's easy to understand why Kotchev goes to Stallone first and foremost over anyone else because Stallone can do the physicality, he can do the vulnerability, he can do the masculinity parts of it while also being kind of cheaper at this point, because he's not quite the biggest name in Hollywood yet. Yeah, and he's also kind of, I don't mean this in a, in a rude way, he's starting to get kind of diluted, because there, there's more of him. Right? There, there we're getting the Arnolds, like we've talked about, the Jean-Claude Van Dams, the other like kind of big stars at the time, Lou Ferrigno's. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing about Stallone is that what we mentioned earlier is that he comes across Blue Collar, just as a screen presence and as an actor. Yes which is what the script definitely portrays Rambo to be, is he's not, uh, I wouldn't even call him a, a very literate guy. He's just a raw nerve that doesn't know how to actually voice anything or feel anything. He's just repressing everything. He has the blue collar of Bruce Willis, but the physicality of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ooh, ooh, give, so, someone tell that to Stallone right now. He'll put that on like a trophy in his house. He's got like facial busts of like his characters. He'd have that in, like engraved on a jacket, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing that I, I want to mention here is that like Stallone is easy for the audience to buy in immediately because of Rocky. When audiences go to see First Blood, they're going to go, oh, that's Rocky. He's the underdog guy who I want to root for. 
So it's it's not a hard sell in that regard for all audiences to go like, okay, I'm immediately in on this guy because this movie could come across very much as like, man, this guy's kind of an asshole beating up all these townies and he goes overboard destroying like whole buildings and like throwing people from cars. But when it's Stallone, it feels much more identifiable as like, that's a real guy who I want to root for immediately. Well, it made me laugh a little bit, but also on a serious note, first credit for Sylvester Stallone on this movie is a screenplay by. Mm. You know, it's not it's not his his acting credit that pops up first, which is kind of funny because I'm sure he was conscious of that, of like, hey, like, I can't just be a cold-blooded killer throughout this whole entire movie. Like, I, there has to be motivation as to why I'm doing these things, you know? Like, me, people watching me just run around the woods and, you know, <laughs> slip people's throats <laughs> is, is going to be entertaining, but I'm going to be I'm going to be Jason Voorhees when I do things like that. They're not going to see the wounded Vietnam vet veteran. Exactly. So the story is Stallone gets a script on Monday, and then on a Tuesday afternoon, he says he's going to star in the movie. Um, to his credit, Stallone kind of recognizes the brilliance of First Blood script. He sees a really clear and powerful symbol of Rambo in the action set pieces, but he's exactly the same problem that you're talking about right now, Nick. In the original script, Rambo kills 16 people. In the first original yeah. <laughs> First Blood script, Rambo is brutal and cold-blooded. The book is very similar. Stallone hated that. He just really didn't like it. Rightfully, he points out that the audience is going to lose all sympathy for Rambo if he goes every deputy that chases him down, and they'd stop seeing the victim of war and just see the repeated actions of it. So Stallone says, look, I'll do the movie, fine, whatever, I'm interested, but I want to rewrite the script. Ted Kotcheff is like, hey, man, I mean, <laughs> the dude got a nomination for Best Original Screenplay. He's not, he's not off his gourd. He agrees. Stallone writes seven drafts of this movie. Seven. And and that's crazy. And this is kind of what we're talking about earlier, is that he's the guy who's an artist first, an action hero second. He's not just a dumb muscle-bound action star. He's looking at this movie going like, okay, what? how does it work for the audience, this choice? How does it work for me as an actor? How does it work for me as, as someone who's actually directed movies at this point? How would you shoot this? What's practical? What's not? Um, and the other part of what we're talking about, Nick, is that Stallone initially agrees just to write the movie. He agrees to write it and co and co-write it and nothing else. But in the writing process, he's like, I want to star in this movie. Yeah, which is like crazy to think about yes. that he would <laughs> this is literally a film made for him. This is a vehicle for him at a point like you're talking about where it's like, let me get back on track, let me do something where it's more, you know me doing things that the audience has seen me do before, but in a different way. For him to just like be like, I'm going to write this and, and put it away, that's somebody else's job. Like that's like Jack Nicholson stuff. Where like Jack mm -hmm. Nicholson Jack Nicholson wanted to be a writer before he was an actor. So it's like he really is very conscious of like every kind of imprint that he makes, which makes it the rest of his career so fucking astounding. <laughs> of just like somebody who's so intelligent who just really did get caught up in the machine and I think quite possibly their own ego. I mean, that's the other part of all this that I, I really want to like make sure the audience realizes. Sylvester Stallone's really smart. I know, I know the reputation. I know everything people say about him, the voice, the impressions. Of course, yes. The, the legacy yeah. that he's made for himself. But he's a painter. He was, could have gone pro in polo. He's just a really gifted guy. And I think everyone always forgets this about Stallone, is that he wrote Rocky. He fucking wrote that movie by himself as a guy whose biggest role was Stanley and Wards of Flatbush. 
he wrote one of the best movies, the most enduring movies of the last 40 years by himself. He had no help. He was not in the industry for 30 years. He did it all by himself. It's crazy. Like, he's a genius. He's literally one of the smartest people in Hollywood, I, I think, to some degree. Yeah. And again, something that I think, like, a very intelligent person, in the, like, when it comes to like, that kind of thing, but also something that's one of his biggest detriment, detriments. He's been caught up in this battle for the Rocky rights for how long now and making those movies and having more creative control. It's just, I think he, his, that is a great feat of his, but he also is so invested and so smart and, like, feels like he can figure out all these massive things about the character and how the film needs to look and who should be writing it and who should be directing it. It's usually he wants it to be him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that it causes problems for him of being able to let go and take take himself and take, a like, a, a bird's-eye view of, like, the situation. I would not be surprised if original drafts of Creed Three had Rocky in a very diminished role and Stallone read them and went, no, I have to be a bigger part of this. And that the people involved said, no, you're not. And Stallone was like, well, then I'm not in the movie. It felt like that when, when yes. we saw it. I, I felt that, yeah. I mean, there's lines where they're like, hey, where's Rocky? They're like, I'm spending time with this grandkid. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, it felt like, shit, we're starting shooting in like a, a week and a half, and we, we just Stallone just backed out or whatever, how much time they had. And we're like, we need to write it to this out. And not in a way that's interesting, in the way of like, ah, I'm getting old. I don't know how yeah. much longer Rocky's going to be around. It's like, hey, maybe give him like an interesting storyline, like a B storyline that like keeps me engaged if we are going to make him have to be a part of it or he mm -hmm. like insists on being a bigger part of it. Yes. Uh, still unfrustrating as we get to more. Uh, but his changes for First Blood is he wants to give Rambo the first name John because he thinks it's far more identifiable for the character, for the audience to be like, look, he's not just this killing machine named Rambo. He's John Rambo. He's a person. He also goes with the thing we talked about where Rambo's going to wound the posse instead of just outright murdering them. Stallone also, I believe, adds the ending monologue. There's the moment in Sly, the documentary, where he holds up the monologue and he holds it up like a father does his baby. <laughs> and he never says like, oh, I wrote this for the movie and it was my idea. But the way he's holding it and the way he's talking about like the story he heard about the shine boxes in Vietnam. He, I believe he wrote that. And ultimately Stallone also changes the fate of Rambo. You know, like we said in the original draft, Rambo almost always dies. They go after the books idea. Sometimes he succumbs to his injuries, sustained fighting Teasel. Other times he just outright killed himself. Uh, Stallone hated all of these ideas and mm, he felt yeah. really attached to the symbology behind the Rambo character. Uh, and he says in the slide documentary that, um, I don't want every Vietnam vet to see this film and see me shot and realize, oh, there's no hope for me. Nope. Because at this time, when when First Blood is really ramping up, Vietnam vets are killing themselves in, in bunches. It was a real, real epidemic and problem going around in that community of they legitimately felt hopeless along with the drug abuse and other things that we're talking about. And uh, kudos to Stallone. It's just being like a person and a human and not being like the action star. Being socially conscious. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like, that's what I'm talking about. I, Schwarzenegger wouldn't read the script and go, we need to change that because I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger and I don't die. But Stallone looks and goes like, I can't die because I don't want veterans to walk out of this movie and think they should just go kill themselves. Or that, you know, the way that Rambo deals with the issue is the answer too, which right. I'm sure is something we'll talk about later in the show. Absolutely. So a big ups to Stallone, you know, like I, I just don't think people give him enough credit for that. And um, he pushes for this change, but they do shoot two endings for the movie. There's a version where Rambo commits suicide. There's a version where he turns himself in. 
Kashif and Salone after screens agree to the latter, and that's why we get the version that we get. So now, <laughs> with all of that out of the way, let's just talk about Stallone in this movie real quick. This is an incredible performance. I, I think I'd mentioned at the start of the show, uh, I was I didn't like this movie as much as I used to, but I'm more impressed by it. And the Stallone performance is easily one of the reasons for that, that feeling. Uh, I don't think when you're younger, you take, you appreciate how hard it is to be silent in a movie role, but emote so much and feel so little, or feel so much with just saying so little. The, the look that he gives Delmar's mother when he hands her the picture back and is like, sorry. It's just like, <laughs> it's, it's like incredible stuff to watch or just the physicality that he's going to this movie with where we mentioned it, I think at the start of the show, but like he literally fell down a tree for the production and broke a rib doing it. He let <laughs> rats bite him and he got in water with rats and he had to go to the hospital multiple times. He's like, no, this is the shot. This is what we're doing. I'm going to go do it. And just like, God, in the ending monologue, I've seen some people maybe feel a certain way that he's going too over the top or that it's too much of a, of a loud choice for that character. But I completely disagree. And I think Stallone's a genius for the choice that he does make because he recognizes that Rambo is a person in this movie who has never explained his feelings to anyone at any point in his life. He is repressed. He is miserable. He's depressed. He's never talked to anyone. So when he lets it all out, he is screaming and he is shouting because it's the first like catharsis for him. His voice is going up in pitch. Yes. Yeah. And he's Great. Stallone. I, I love those choices. Me too. Because it's Stallone recognizing that this character would revert back to his infant state at this moment. That's what would actually happen to this guy. He wouldn't just sit there and be like, this kid came up to us and said, shine, shine, please. He wouldn't be detached. He'd be breaking. He is the emotional presence of a of a young boy. He, yeah. he throughout the entire movie. It's it's quite evident, even the way he walks and talks to people, or the way he doesn't listen to people. You know, I think one of the other things you're talking about of just a great subtle piece of acting too is when he could kill Teasel, he's got the knife against his throat and he tells him to let it go. Mm -hmm. That's the way that he looks the way that he looks at him is like it's one thing to like play that role where like we've talked about, where it's like the almost like the Harvey Dent thing of you live long enough to see yourself, <laughs> you know, be <laughs> a hero or die, <laughs> yeah, become the villain or you die a hero, whatever the hell it is. Um, the thing that I love about that is in that moment of the movie, you kind of start to lose the fantastical elements of that character. You stop mm. necessarily believing that what he's doing is like him just defending himself. You know, he you see a killer you see yeah a, a programmed machine and i think that's really like you talk about a choice that is difficult to portray accurately and realistic like i buy that choice in that movie i i put this up there because like i said i didn't see this movie until later in life i saw copland i saw all the rockies i saw all the stuff that you should see way before i put this maybe as my second favorite like acting performance for stallone i mean look <laughs> there's no other way to say it but like Rocky is his best performance, bar none. The first Rocky or Creed, whichever one you prefer, are his best performances. But First Blood is criminally underrated because the movie entirely rests on his shoulders, but his shoulders are so slumped. And I don't mean literally, I mean like he has to be dead inside for so much of this movie, even when he is reverting back to the program machine. There's no fire in his eyes that's like, yeah, I'm loving this. There's no like passion to what he's doing. He's just robotic. 
He's just like, okay, I'm going to hold the knife to this guy's throat. If I cut him here, he's dead. But if I cut him here, I just nick his throat enough to, to like leave a warning message. And someone has to carry all of that with him as an actor while also knowing in the back of his mind, what is this character thinking? What is he feeling? Is he repressing his emotions? Is he a good guy? Was he always going to snap? Does he want to kill Teasel? Yes. Like, and if Troutman wasn't there, would he just shoot Teasel in the head and just be happy dying in that like grocery store or whatever it was? I don't know, but Stallone's performance opens up those question boxes in a way that feels completely believable and nuanced. It's just like, <laughs> we'll get to the, like, the later Stallone choices, but I guess the question is, like, was John Rambo always going to snap to you? And this is a question I asked to you off screen, and I, do, I hate to, you know, answer a question with a question, but could, <laughs> could he have just left? You know, could, could Rambo have just left? And I mean that in kind of joking sense, you know, when Teasel drops him off and says, 30 miles to Oregon, there's a diner up there, blah, blah, blah. It's a really, obviously, it's a turning point of the entire movie, but it's a, it's a fair question of just like, hey, this guy is like nothing. So like, mm-hmm. what is another like 30 minutes for him? But it's also one of those things of like, I'm not going to let you dictate my rights as a citizen. Like I can do, I can do as I please. I'm, I haven't broken any laws. I'm, I've, I serve this country in nobly and done more than you have in your shit sack career as sheriff like fuck you there's a there's that defiant streak that you also start to that part of the movie like yeah yeah no fuck that guy yeah knowing you are with rambo and then you know he starts basically blowing up the entire town which is where the movie kind of goes off the rails for me a little bit um and you're just you're kind of like this guy has to this guy has to be brought down I think there's there's two parts of that, which is number one, he goes back into hope, which again, like perfect ironic name for this town. He goes back into hope because I think he's genuinely hungry. I think this dude hasn't eaten in maybe a day and a half, and that's the closest way to go get food. Uh, and like another thirty miles to Oregon, he'll literally be starving. He's not sure anyone's going to pick him up with the way he looks and the way he's dressed, and part of that. So I don't think he can let that go. But the broader issue of the third act and why he goes on such a tear, I think he doesn't let go because he never got to finish his war. Vietnam, as everyone mm. knows in history, was a war that just ended. There was no final battle that determined everything. There was no like there wasn't a, an emphasis on that war really. There was a lot of awful things that happened throughout that culminated to eventually the U.S. being like, "We're getting out of here. We're just leaving on Saigon. Whoever's left is left." And I think still Rambo is someone who was in the elite fighting force in that war, who was like some of the the missions solely rests on him and his you know fellow troops' responsibilities in their shoulders. And so to have that rug pulled out from you, and to say to you, "Hey, all of your comrades are dead, all of your other friends are dead, everything you fought and and risked your life for and was traumatized for forever didn't matter," because guess what? We just got out of there like we were never there. And so to him. Getting to hope and having these experiences are like, I have to put an end to this. That's why he says to Troutman, it's not over. It's never over because he's been fighting this whole life. Nothing is ever over because he's never been able to finish something that actually happened to him. No doubt. Yeah, it's it's one of the strongest points of the character. And if Stallone wrote those things in, brilliant choices by him. Mm -hmm. I believe he did. Um and to the part of I think Rambo is always going to snap because he's probably the most trauma, one of the most traumatic war heroes of that war. I mean, he's a fictional character, but he wasn't just a guy that lost the war and came home. He was tortured. 
he was he watched i would assume they tortured some of his other fellow soldiers and made yeah, them a prisoner of war yeah yeah exactly yeah. and so i imagine to that extent it's this thing of he was always going to snap it was always going to be someone who pushed him too far and would it have been so far enough where like he tries to destroy chicago if he's there one bad day no but i think he would have beaten someone up severely and gotten put in prison for for going too far yeah for sure the character is disturbed you know and they they do a I think that's pretty explicitly stated within the first five to ten minutes and, you know, severely underdeveloped as a person. Yes. What's a really good choice about this movie as well is like, I don't know if we've talked about him enough, and I think that it's just time to maybe include him as well. Richard Crenna and his character Troutman almost has this like psychosis over Rambo. You know, it's not like a like, oh, it's a father and son relationship. He tries to portray it as that, but the powers and the way that Rambo responds to his commands and the way they communicate with each other, he has this real kind of like control over him and manipulation in a way that doesn't feel bad. You know, it doesn't, the movie never makes it feel perverse. And I think that really speaks to his performance of him just absolutely killing it. But, like, it is interesting how that is portrayed. I think Troutman has control because he's the... I always say I think. <laughs> Troutman has control over John Rambo because I don't think John Rambo's ever had a father figure in his life that actually cared for him. And mm-hmm. when he's in the war, Troutman feels like a person that cares for him. He, I don't think he does, truthfully, and that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you when we get to Troutman, is Rambo has that line of, like, I tried to call him Fort Bragg and you never got back to me. And, and Troutman says, like, oh, I didn't get the message or whatever. He definitely got the message. I think yeah. Troutman 100% knew that Rambo was looking for him and went, like, nah, I don't need this guy. He was a tool for me. And the Rambo way was that, a tool of war. Absolutely. The way he's like, I made Rambo. He's not saying, like, I took care of Rambo and nurtured him to this thing. He says, I made him. It, there's a clear line of, like, this dude's just a cold-blooded asshole. And... <laughs> I, I I don't think he ever really recognized the war's toll on anyone until that final moment in the confrontation in the store, because this is the other part that's so brilliant about First Blood, is situating a colonel who is the stand-in for the U.S. government. The U.S. government, the colonel said, hey, go take that hill. Were they on that hill? No. They didn't, they didn't know. They didn't actually experience things firsthand. They would give the orders, and that was that. So when Krenna is face-first with Rambo, it's the first time he's really had to come to grips with the cost of war. And it's why I love, I love Krenna's acting choice in the moment of putting the hand on Stallone's shoulder. He's not hugging him because he's a repressed guy in and of himself who doesn't know how to comfort someone in an age of like, you know, stoic masculinity. So he just puts his arm on him and just lets Rambo cry in him. Yeah, that's a great choice. Great performance. We should talk about how we get to Richard Krenna. <laughs> This is a really funny what if that almost wasn't a what if because before Krenna was in the movie, Kurt Douglas was signed on to play Troutman. Kurt Douglas. Kurt Douglas. Things with Douglas were so serious that when they would pitch the movie to investors, you can still find posters that says, Kurt Douglas is Troutman in First Blood. They were pitching Kirk Douglas more than they were still on at that point. And then as they were days away from production starting in Canada, Douglas shows up. <laughs> and, he, and he turns out it's just fucking crazy. <laughs> it turns out that Douglas showed up with the whole like rewrite of the movie, not telling anyone. And then he's like, "That's going to be our shooting script, guys. That's what we're rolling with right now." And among tell the audience what what that <laughs> encapsulates, please. Among Douglas's changes were that Troutman was going to kill Rambo and then sit with a dying Teasel and I guess like hold his hand. 
And then Douglas wanted Trout to become possessed by the spirit of Rambo. This is pursed alone. Douglas's script ended with, quote-unquote, a hand reaching up in the rearview mirror. The camera turns up and we see Rambo. Then it turns a bit higher, and Troutman is wearing your headband. As if to imply... There's no... We're, we're not even joking. Like I said earlier about the Jason Voorhees thing, they literally yeah. almost made Friday the 13th. Like, <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> it's such an awful idea. <laughs> like, from a respected actor, like, not even respected. One of the Hollywood icons of his age comes to this movie, he's like, well, yeah, and then I get possessed yeah, by Rambo. of his era. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know what... <laughs> And also really kind of confuses me, too, where, like, I think we talked about earlier where there was probably a lot of political nuance that had to go to, into some of these early drafts. To me, it seems it's, again, where it's one of those issues where it's just, like, where do you, like, see this idea fitting into this material? Like, I don't see it at all, you know? So, yeah, I don't know what's going on. I mean, the other part of this is that Kirk Douglas is born in 1916. Uh, he's he's yeah. old. <laughs> and Richard Crenna. <laughs> was born in 1926. It's a whole 10 year age difference in that, which leads into a lot more believability of like empathy for soldiers at that point. And Krenna fought and served in world war two, as we found out before the show started. So he's a first hand. Thank you for veteran. your service. Thank you for your service, Richard Krenna. You're a big dog. Everyone in the production was like, did you hear about Kirk's pitch? What are- is he okay? <laughs> <laughs> and so they were like, hey, Kirk. And like, then the hand pops up in the back of the truck. <laughs> he just keeps saying it. <laughs> and then it possessed my Rambo. And it's like, no, Kirk, no. <laughs> so so Kachif and Vassar and Vajna are like, hey, Kirk, you know, you're a hero. You're a legend. You're one of the reasons we're able to make this movie, but we can't do that. It just doesn't fit with what we have in mind for this movie and this character. And so Douglas just like, all right, well, fucking see ya. And he just quit. <laughs> so such an old man move. Such an old man move, days away from production actually starting. And so the production was quick. They wanted to get Rock Hudson for the role of, of Troutman. And Hudson wanted to play the role, but he needed open heart surgery, so he had to decline. So again, days before shooting began, they approached Richard Krenna. According to Kotchev, Krenna flew up to meet everyone one day, and then that night started shooting. It makes this it makes this performance even more stunning. I've been recently doing cam tech finals, shooting my own, working on other people's. So I've been on set quite a bit frequently and uh, recently. And you know, I was dolly gripping for somebody the other day, and unfortunately, it was a scene with two actors. One of the actors wasn't able to make it. So um, lovely, the talented Laura Lounge. Uh, hopped on to set with a script that she had never read, never been a part of, and proceeded to absolutely body the script. Like, she didn't give one line reading that sounded the same. She nailed all the emotional character beats of all just a dialogue scene. And I mean, like, we're talking 90s dialogue. It's a movie that's been shouted out on the podcast. I'm keeping it hidden for when we pick it because I want you to just be blown away with, like, what this woman did. But, like, the ability of what I'm saying here to get back to the point of like with Krenna and tie it in with Laura Lounge and this amazing performance is to be able to just hop on set and to hit the emotional beats and the emotional highs that this performance does with just hours to go is just pros pro stuff. We talk about sometimes just going by the numbers on film sets and this is by the number stuff. He's just a fucking like maverick. This is amazing stuff to just get the script and be like, yeah, no, I got this. And like, enhance that you know everybody else that we've talked about who's like bringing their ideas and bringing their sauce to the party kirk douglas over here with some some baddie stuff that's just over the hill hollywood 
like he enhances the movie. If he's not in this movie, I think all like I said, all that interior stuff just brings it down even more. Some of it does bog, but like I, I kind of disagree with you in that regard with the pacing. Like that that's not the thing that bothers me. It's more the third act and the way things kind of divulge in that part of the movie. But like to be able to do those things and like professionally come on set in any capacity and do that is just blows my mind. Acting is such a hard job. And I think like sometimes it doesn't get the credit that it deserves or the respect, but like that's fucking amazing. Yes. So basically what happened was that Krenna would be on set in location and he would have Ted Kotcha feeding him the lines as they were doing it. Basically, that's how like shoestring this was going at the moment. And for Krenna to internalize this character and put together all these choices and then just give like the best line deliveries we've ever heard. Like we've talked about it, but like God didn't make Rambo. I did just like the perfect delivery. Or just the fact of, like, if you're going up those mountains, you're going to do one thing. What's that? A hell of a lot of body bags. Like, <laughs> it's, just so, it's just so incredible. And that's kind of the problem with Troutman, though, is, like, I feel like we should hate them more. But the way he has all these lines, I'm like, God, he's the coolest guy. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, it's still obviously amazing, like, even with, like, Kachov shouting out the lines. But, like, you know, seeing someone, like, read an entire script of dialogue like she did and just like absolutely crush it when you see things like that up close and personal you have like a whole new understanding for acting and i'm like yeah i'm still blown away by that performance so we gotta just talk about teasel real quick and uh the performance of brian dennehy i love brian dennehy in this movie yeah i'm a big you know quiet brian dennehy guy just terrific actor and I think what makes him so good, and I always, I've got, what makes Brian Dennehy so good in this movie is just the raw physicality he possesses. We talked about Stallone a lot earlier with physicality, but the way that Dennehy shifts his body, he like rubs his beer belly as he's walking to the police station, and he just has this massive frame. It's very like Vincent D'Onofrio esque in the later part of his mm. career, where he's just using it like he's just wading through air as he's moving around it's just like a force using it in great sullen moments like i'm sure it played for laughs in the theater in the moment when she's like he says to his receptionist hold all my calls i'm sure everybody like laughed when that movie happened he's not playing it for laughs no you know when he closes that door and goes to sit in the chair the way he slowly sits over there's like man that's like you said some really great physicality or i think of like the shot where he's looking out the window and he sees like the town on fire behind him that's just like him standing there in that window as just like a sullen broken big dummy you know, like that's really great stuff. And recognizing that for all of his work to keep his hometown, I presume this is his hometown, to keep his hometown safe his whole life, one guy just came in and completely demolished everything he ever stood for, you know, and could have killed him. Yes, multiple times. And there, multiple. that's one thing that we need to talk about later, too, is like the symbolism of Teasel and like what I think he represents. Well, do you want to just get into it now since we're talking about the character? Yeah, let's talk about him now. Okay, go ahead. Just something like I picked up on this watch through is, to me, I, I just kind of wanted to pose a question to you. Like, do you think like Teasel is kind of maybe an allegory for the Vietnam War and like our involvement as a whole? I mean, like I'm, I'm just some things that I kind of pull from this movie. No one is listening to him ever. His own troops. There's a couple moments I watched this with subtitles on the other night where like, yeah. even while the the, he, the camera's not on him and we're on Troutman, you still get dialogue of other people not being able to follow his instruction. You know, he has access to a bunch of resources that he doesn't know how to use or he shouldn't be using, you know, and for his for the fallout of the thing, he didn't really stop anything or change, make any change or like 
Rambo at the end of the movie for like all of like the action stuff that we've been talking about, I think is kind of like bad character mm-hmm. in, in, in all reality. So like, I don't know, to me, it just like the symbolisms were kind of there of like the big chief that no one listens to and like carrying the big stick and trying to swing it around the forest with all your might and just like not really understanding what you're doing it for or how to do it. Mm-hmm. And picking on Se- someone. Seems very picking on someone yes there you go again also fighting in a terrain you know while you know obviously vietnam is thousands of miles away from america and he lives in washington his whole life he doesn't he's not a mountaineer he's not an outdoorsman if you look at him so fighting on a terrain that you're unfamiliar with and you're don't have the upper hand on like another thing that kind of just like i don't know i saw a lot of parallels that i didn't as a younger viewer from what i remember of the book troutman owns far more of that to me of like symbolizing America and the way that they let down veterans. But I think because Troutman comes in kind of late in this movie and the fact it's, it's 90 minutes, that's probably why it feels so much more like Dennehy. But regardless, it's a really good point that I hadn't really considered before because I've always associated the, the Teasel character symbolizing corrupt cops. And the fact that, you know, I don't want to sidetrack from your point too much, uh, but, but I, I but here's ahead, the no, thing. Yeah, like Teasel picks on this guy for no reason because he's a yuppie and then just does all these things in the way that Art Galt is like hosing him down despite the fact like we're going to shave you. We're going to make you look real nice. And I think I commend First Blood for being a movie in 82 to be like, hey, small town cops are fucking assholes sometimes because they, they are such like power players in the small community that there's no one there to challenge them. So guys like Art Galt or Teasel are left unchecked to do whatever they want. And I would say that Teasel isn't the, the worst case of that. It's far, it's far more galt. But Teasel is definitely a part of it where he pushes Rambo to the point that all of this happens because Teasel just doesn't want to let go. And like he's so upright and frigid or rigid about like his, his town. Yeah, I don't buy Teasel as a yuppie. You know, that's that's a that's a log in town. I don't really buy anybody up there as a yuppie. It's it's Well, I meant he doesn't like yuppies. So when he sees Rambo, he's like, I gotta get you out of here. Yeah, I, I guess, but like to me, I don't know. It just it there were some parallels for that. I do think that you have a good point with the corrupt cops, especially at this point in America. Well, any time in America, but yeah. that time too. But but also, he's not really there when a lot of the bad stuff happens to Ramdrill. You know, he's he's in the office, like you said. It's mainly Galt. Galt's the only guy in this movie where you're like. <laughs> Totally doesn't deserve to die. His death is kind of accidental, but it's like, yeah, I kind of had it coming for just being a shitbird, right? Like, <laughs> he's the exact, I think he's the exact symbolism of the things that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And what I was kind of saying earlier, somebody who's just like, didn't have their great fight. So now it's like, well, here's mine. I'm going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this movie is definitely layered in anti-war Vietnam. Look at what they did to these poor soldiers things. So I think your point is absolutely perfect. I think I think both of our, our points are very valid. Yeah, and I think Dennehy does do a great job at performing all of this and con- like controlling all this and being a symbol for all of this, while also just feeling like just a guy. There's a way that a lot of actors could be swallowed by the symbolism of the character of Teasel, and, and just like have that consume their performance. But Dennehy does such a good job of just like coming across as a guy. The way he talks to the other guys, the way he's like, he was my best friend. I've noticed since I was since eighth grade or whatever. Like there's there is a humanity that he brings to Teasel that I feel like is definitely important to that character working the way it does. Do you like Teasel in the first like three or four minutes in the car? Are you like this guy's an asshole, but he's not 
He's not a bad dude, right? I kind of get that for the first three to four minutes in the ride. Until he drops Rambo off in the rain. I'm like, oh, this guy's a fucking prick. But for the mm-hmm. first three or four minutes he's in that car, he's just throwing little barbs out there, little jokes to be an asshole. But you're like, all right, maybe this guy's just kind of like a cheeky little jerk. But, like, maybe he's not downright, you know, vindictive. I think he's a harmless asshole because he's never been challenged. I, I And so I, I see where you're coming from, and I kind of could see myself having a donut with Teasel and just be like, hey, man, you watch... Have a donut. Yeah, have a little donut. Hey, you, you see those Hawks game last night? You see the Seahawks? You see Gino throw a couple passes last night? Holy cow. And he'd be like, ah, oh, I love Gino, but I, I miss I miss uh, Steve... What is it, Steve Casper? What is it, Steve, uh, Steve Wargent? Um, Steve Wargent, yeah. Steve Wargent wow, gets a, a shout-out today. <laughs> Shout out the white boys. Shout out the white boy wide receivers. Well, you know Teza would like Steve Wargent far more than he does oh, yeah. Smith. He's a hard-nosed football player. He goes out there and gives it every play, every all he can, no matter what down it is. He's a gritty player there, that Steve Wargent. I don't know why we made Sheriff Teasel into like a Chicago Bears guy, but I'm here for it. Chicago beat cop, yeah. <laughs> but Teasel does come across like somewhat likable, but he's definitely a guy that's never been challenged, so he can say these awful jokes to this guy and be like, get out of here, and like, I, I don't want to see spread him, or like, the way he's just talking to Rambo, like a, like a complete dickhead, is because he's he's never been like told he can't do that, because he's the sheriff of the town, and no one, I don't, and I don't think no one likes him either. I think he walks around that town, and people are like, oh, there's Will, yeah, I mean, he's probably going to give me a, a parking ticket, because I'm not parked in the exact spot he wants me to be. Yeah, but we see at the restaurant when him and Trapman go, she's like, hey, Sheriff, like, the girl's pretty cheery to him. I don't know if, that's the other thing, too, is like, I don't know if everybody hates him. I think he's respected enough, but I don't know if they like him. And I think part of it is like, hey, Sheriff, because, like, if I don't say, hey, Sheriff, to me, you're going to hold a grudge because you're a small man and behind a big badge, you know? Yeah, what are you kids doing out here so late at night, huh? (laughs) Necking down at the lake, I caught him. Galt, Galt, I got him, and Galt would be like, "Well, let's just let's kill them. Let's just shoot them." Yeah, <laughs> and Teasel would be like, "What? No, they're just kissing." Jesus, dude, what the fuck is wrong with you, you psychopath? Uh, <laughs> so, with the castings out of the way, um, we can talk about the box office now, and, and Galt. We'll, we'll talk about Galt later. Let's just say, uh, first blood went through a ton of post production changes, uh, many of which we've we've discussed. But the biggest change is the movie's runtime. There was an early cut of this movie that was three and a half hours long. I don't know what it would have entailed. I don't, I don't know how you make this movie three and a half hours. From what I heard, it sounded like it was like him hunting, like a lot of the process of being outdoors, like almost like a Jeremiah Johnson thing. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know, like how that would have worked at all. Um, and like his great suggestion, I think, too, and you might have this in your research. I don't want to spoil it, but like it's him just being like, rid of a lot of the scenes of me talking, please. Like, yeah. <laughs> they're bad ideas. Stallone basically did say, uh, if there's any lines of dialogue we can cut from the script as he was writing it, and I think as he was helping edit it, let's do it. Because Rambo works far more as a silent character doesn't say anything. Um, and the other part of it is that Stallone watched his three-hour rough cut and was like, this sucks. <laughs> and he wanted to buy the rights to First Blood, give more money to David Morrell, and then just destroy the movie before it could destroy him, basically. Uh, Not Morel money, dude. That's got to be a Fortune 500 at this point. Jesus. I need, to look up, I need to look up his like net worth real quick. I'm really curious about what David Morel... Because he, he mean, wrote more books after the fact, too. I, I, it's probably not accurate, but... 
<laughs> Three billion dollars? Could you imagine? Uh, there's no answer. All right. Well, it's three million. It's, too, right, it's un. It's unknown. Good for you, David Morrell. Good for you. Um, three million. That's a nice little nut. There you go. It's a nice. Well, yeah. That's one word for it. Anyways, uh, there's a lot of heavy re-editing that gets moved down to its 93 runtime, and all of that work pays off. First Blood makes six million dollars its opening week. It ends its run with $21 million domestic, 125 worldwide. It becomes the first major Hollywood blockbuster released in China, selling 76 million tickets in 1985. <laughs> it's insane that that's the first one. Yeah, it's weird that it, it would be this movie that makes the Chinese market go like, awesome, because this is not the way that Rambo 2 is. Right. First Blood, speaking of Rambo 2, spawns a whole series. You know, we got First Blood Part 2, Rambo 3, Rambo, and Rambo Last Blood. Uh, does the legacy of like the future movies impact your perception of the first one, or does it just make you appreciate it more? Well, you know, Josh, I'd really have to have a perception of the other ones to, That's true. to answer that question. <laughs> um, I think I've seen them all in passing, like just flicking through Spike TV or whatever back in the early 2000s. Spike! Um, Spike, dude. MXC, what's up? But uh, just movies that really get preposterous. I don't know. Like, Do any of them go back to Vietnam, or are they all like moving forward in time? I believe they're all moving forward in time. And I think as the 80s okay. go on... So that's on... ridiculous to start. <laughs> um, so, like, this is kind of one of those movies that I think just kind of has to end with one. Like, there is no need for a sequel besides just to make money. And that's really kind of my problem with a lot of these, you know, Rocky 5 to 6 or whatever, you know. You start to get into, like, the, the crazy zone. Although Rocky 6 is pretty good. So... Uh... I'm looking up Rambo First Blood Part 2 real quick. He does go back to Vietnam, but it is after the fact. To try and find American prisoners of war, he uh, he falls in with a Vietnamese lover, but she dies, so then he goes and gets revenge on them. So, needless to say, it goes off on, on the wrong tangent. Yeah, um, here's the thing. Like, Rambo's never getting out of prison. No. <laughs> right? Like, Rambo's going to be in prison for, like, 25 to 30 years. Rambo's like, going to die there. Terrorism. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like that's the, that's my problem with all of those movies that go forward in time. It's just, it it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And it's why I also want to do this movie is because I could go back and when we post this episode, if people want to watch First Blood they could be like, oh, wow, this is not what I remembered or what I expected. Because one of the good things about the internet now is you can see these people react to movies for the first time. And everyone who yeah. I've, I've seen like one or two videos of it, as they get to like the 40 minute mark, they're like, this is not what I expected this movie to be whatsoever. Because this movie's a drama way more than as an action movie. And so I think the public perception of the later Rambos hurt this movie because this movie has nothing to do with them, so they just discount it and be like, well, I don't want to watch First Blood. It's just more of the same. Yeah, I mean, I don't know which one it is. Is it the third one where he's older and he's just like on a Gatling gun, just literally pe yeah. blowing people apart? Like, it became almost a kill count on... I think it was yeah. like, that's more what it became more famous for. It was like, it's kill count on YouTube than it Basically. was anything to do with the movie. And it just, it's stupid. Okay, speaking of frustrating stupid movies that ruin uh, a certain movie's legacy and an action star's icon and just like his whole machismo um let's do this the long discussion now let's do it god it's one of the greatest like i know you said at the start of the show it's one of the greatest what is but like truly it really pisses me off every time i really sit and think about stolen's career and what he did and how he wasted his time in a way that it. that uh like 
Uh, in the Sly documentary, they show clips from him like after he wins the Oscar and like the hubbub after him. And they're talking to him as like the next Brando, the next Pacino, the next De Niro. And there's this whole assumption that he's like the next one of the guys and one of the great dramatic talents. And he never he never tried to be that. And he never really was. And so like he didn't he didn't try. Like, here, here's the times he tried post Rocky really in his whole career from what I could like kind of write down, correct me if I'm wrong. It's Rocky. It's, it's Rocky two. It's kind of parts of Rocky three. There's some moments in Rocky that are genuine drama that are good. First blood, Copland, Rocky six, Creed and Creed two. Those are the only ones I counted. You said earlier that Rocky's your favorite performance, but I mean, mine might really might be Copland. Wow. You're a big Freddy guy. I, I, th- I think that performance is, is really kind of great. Yeah, um, I hate it. I hate. I hate everything. I hate everything about his filmography in the eighties, post First Blood, into the nineties. Hanger is pretty good. It's yeah, fun. I, are we gonna really do the be the guys who are like well, that was one of the better ones? It's like, yeah, it's a six. Okay, yeah, fair. It, it's a yeah, six. Okay, it's a six for a guy who is billed as one of the best dramatic talents ever. And he's like, hey, yo, what if I make a movie where I'm on a cliff and John Lithgow is trying to hurt me? Big John Lithgow is throwing sauce in that. Look, I love Johnny. I'm just saying, like, it's ridiculous that this is what he did with his time. It's awful. Lithgow heads over here. The most frustrating part of it to me is that Stallone made Rocky to break the mold for himself as an actor. You know, he played the heavies, the goons, the muscle. If you check out Lords of Flatbush, it's him being just like a dumb jock kind of sort of role. Mm -hmm. And he made Rocky express it because he's like, I don't want to be just that. Like, I'm an actor. I have feelings. I have thoughts. I can do more than that. And it's why he makes Rocky. It's why he makes Fist. It's why he writes and directs Paradise Alley. It's why he makes First Blood. But once he gets that fame and power in 82 with Rocky Three and First Blood, same year, to do whatever he wants in Hollywood. He can do whatever he wants. Pretty, pretty crazy one-two punch, I think we should just like say historically. Absolutely. It's insane. No pun intended. Good, good. Why even catch that? It's insane that he gets all this power and fame this one year, and then he just never goes. He he just goes back into the mold of what he was basically, which is a dumb, tough action guy who just fights people and punches things. I'd also say he's acting in a period of time where those movies are like palpable. Like that's like yes, the the price of admission. You know, like I was talking about this with somebody the other day, and we we're just like kind of saying like. In, like, retrospect, every decade has its great, like, champions. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, the big one that people talk about for the 80s is, like, Raging Bull, which is, like, a movie at the time, which is, like, had its naysayers, but now it's looked at as a masterwork of Scorsese's, and I would wholeheartedly agree. There's, like, not a lot of great stuff in the time period where he's working, where it's, like, I think that he would be great for dramatically. It seems like a lot of the strong dramatic roles are things that he starts up. Not like somebody comes to him besides Ryan Coogler with Creed, which is still like based on a character that he created. Mm-hmm. It's not really a lot of people coming to him, you know, and saying, Hey, I think you'd be great for this. It's kind of like, you know, people coming to him when he's not on a hot streak, a la Copland, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I, it's a lot of the dramatic projects aren't really tailored for him, I don't think, at this period of time. Well, the other part of that is I don't think he really pursued any. So just as much as the problem was there weren't a ton, 
I don't think he pursued any. And, and like we talked about, this fucking guy wrote Rocky. If he wanted to break himself out of this mold and write himself a dramatic role, I think he has the talent to do it. But he just never seemed interested in doing it at that time in the 80s. And it's it, it's equally frustrating because, to point out Copland, that's at a time where he tried to be different and tried to get out of it. And when you look at his 80s and the 90s filmography, it's First Blood, huge hit. He goes Staying Alive, which he directs. No one likes that movie. He does Rhinestone, which he also helps <laughs> write. That movie sucks. So then what does he do? 85, First Blood Part 2, Rocky 4, Cobra, Over the Top, Rambo 3, Lock Up, Tango and Cash. We finally get to the 90s with 1991 with Oscar, which is like, oh, this could be something a little different, a little more of a comedy, all this sort of stuff. That doesn't work either. So we go Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, Cliffhanger, Demolition Man. <laughs> we get to Judge Dredd. And then, oh, hey, Copland, here we go. Freddie Heflin, big dramatic role for Sloan. What's it going to do? Not a huge success either, even though I still think this movie's great. So what does he do? He does like Ants, Get Carter, Driven, Shade, Spy Kids 3. And then he just takes a long time off until we get to Rocky Babo in 2006. Yeah, it's it's a it's a real fumble. I think it might be the biggest one we've talked about on the show. I think we've talked about a lot of people who are really talented that like we might really like, who haven't been able to like get the cachet that they deserve or we think they deserve. But this is someone who is like critically lauded and like popular beyond the point of like just fame is like their own zeitgeist. Just never really got like a strong footing a couple steps in a row. It's always like two steps forward and five steps back, which is really frustrating. You know, I think Creed, the first Creed movie is a really good performance. I, I think after that, the, the rest of them are him really just kind of being Rocky Balboa and just kind of hanging out in those movies. Can we talk about the Oscars of that year real quick? Just to like to mention yeah. it. I feel like we have Yeah, he got to. nommed. He got nommed. He should have won. I, I, I don't mean this as any disrespect to Mark Rylance. He's one of the most terrific actors kind of working in supporting realm today. No one thinks about Bridge of Spies anymore. No one. No, I haven't heard a Bridge of Spies conversation from anyone. Even when it came out, it was like, oh, Bridge of Spies is good, I guess. Nice Spielberg movie. <laughs> I wish I could say I haven't talked about it recently, but we did go over it in one of my classes. But yeah, well, Nick, that's but, not the point I need you to make. Sorry, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But yeah. my point is, okay, aside from that class where they mentioned Bridge of Spies, how often have you heard Bridge of Spies since 2015? Of course, you're, you're 100% right. But like, just read off the, the other performances, like because I like when we talk about them. The other performances for that year were Mark Rylance and Bridge of Spies. He's the winner. But then we go Christian Bale, The Big Short. We go Tom Hardy, The Revenant, Mark Ruffalo in Spotlight, and Sylvester Stallone in Creed. It's between him and Hardy, and both of those are the guys I look at. I'm like, man, both of them probably should have won. Yeah. See, the, the hard thing is for me that we've given supporting Oscars to career like icons for far less. It's also an award in both categories, you know, actress and actor, that have gone to people. It's like, oh, that person's won an Academy Award. You know, it's like, that's like their, you know, Hail Mary. I don't want to call out names, but we all did it last year. Jamie Lee Curtis won for Everything Everywhere All at Once over Stephanie Zhu. That's a lifetime achievement award for Jamie Lee Curtis more than is an actual acting nomination or win for her. Because she's not good in that movie, number one. And number two, she's got like 15 minutes of it. Whereas you can give, they should have given Stallone this Oscar as a lifetime achievement to be like, hey man, you have been around for 40 years. 
you are one of the earliest self-starters in this business that transformed itself, not from just like an indie darling that kept doing it like a Jim Jarmusch. You became one of the stable faces of our industry who carried us through the 80s in a big way. And as much as you've done wrong, you've come around to 2015, back to your roots, and you've grown a dynamite performance, a soulful, magnetic performance. It'll bring a tear to your eye. It, it, That'll bring a tear to your eye. A, yeah, yeah, totally. And yet they were like, Mark Rylands, Bridge of Spies. Like, it's just, it just irritates me that that happens to him when uh, everyone t- Creed has spawned two sequels. Everyone loves the first Creed. People still talk about Creed and that performance way more than they do with Bridge of Spies. And I know that's kind of prisoner of the present moment than it is in 2015. But I think everyone would agree in 2015 that Creed was much more lauded and respected and talked about than Bridge of Spies was critically and commercially. Yeah, I mean, it, it almost felt like an like an obligation. Like it's just going to be nominated because of Spielberg and it's made massively. It's shot great. That's what we're going over with shot composition. Yes. You know, it wasn't anything about how great <laughs> the performance of Mark Rylance was. You know, so it's it's going to get all the tech achievements and you know Spielberg. The name is going to get nominated. It's just it's kind of one of those things. And I agree with you that it's one of those things too, where the early self starter part is a huge thing. Where I think the turning the nose to those people and saying, no, I will not play by your rules. And like, mm-hmm. this is like my path, my career that I'll forge is a, is a surefire way to, to just not win as much as like, we always talk about how much that sucks and it pisses yeah. us off. It's really just the reality of the situation. The bummer about him was the Oscar too, is that if you watch the slide documentary, you hear about his, his early life and how, he didn't have a good relationship with his parents. It was really tough. He didn't get a lot of validation as a child. And I think he's always been chasing since the first Rocky, someone to tell him, hey, you're good at this. You're really good at this. You're one of the best people in the mm-hmm. business at this. And that Oscar would have affirmed so much for him as a person, I think. And when it doesn't happen, and you watch that, when you watch that nomination, when they give it to Rylance and they have that camera on Stallone, he just looks like, this was this was the only time it was ever going to happen. I'm never going to get back here again, and I'm going to go down as as the director and writer of all these movies, but not the actor who won the the claim and the like acceptance for what he wanted to be. Always, it's it's sad to to think about. Yeah, because it's exactly what we talked about. I think I said this earlier with the Tom Cruise thing, where like after Magnolia, it's like okay, no more. I'm done. Yeah giving those pieces of myself away it's ethan hunt or you know it's time to make bullet in the head 20 it's time to make the expendables eight or whatever they're up to now you know it's just it's over with you know and that's just kind of sad exactly because you look at this filmography afterwards when he doesn't get that acceptance it's escape plan the extractors escape plan two it's creed two which is a far less meaty role in performance which he also wrote, which is kind of the controlling thing. And then he goes back to be Rambo with Rambo Last Blood. And then outside of Suicide Squad, it's Samaritan, which seemed like awful. And now Expendables 4, which is just also seems awful. <laughs> yes, but it's also so much of the same thing of him being like, no one else needed to make Creed 2 besides him. He's like, I'll make Creed 2. Yes. Like no one's asking you to step up to that mantle. It's so like like reflective of like him as a person and his how his career is gone. It's like, yeah, but still, this is like I, I still need that acceptance. Like, no, you don't. You that performance was great. We all know you probably should have won. Like mm-hmm. yeah. But he can't let it go. And it's just so annoying looking at his filmography as I'm doing right now and just like 
Don't make Walk Up. Don't make Tango and Cash. Don't make Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Go work with someone talented and just go to them and be like, hey, man, I'll be a supporting role. I'll be a, a tertiary, whatever you want. Let me get back in the game in a way that shows that I'm serious about this. And and by the time he does try those things with Copland, really, he's now too old to the part. He's aged out of the weedy man roles, out of the meatier, juicier roles in Hollywood. So now he's like 45, 50. And it's like, that's your age bracket. Are you going to take supporting roles at that point or age? Or do you want to, after Copland doesn't work, just go back to what worked for you and be action star. And that's what he does. And it's well, really it's also, annoying. I think he also has the Cam Newton effect or like, he can't Ooh. be a backup. He can't, he can't be just the supporting actor. It's the same yeah. thing with Creed too. I, he, he wrote that script and Rocky is in a pretty large portion of that movie. Yeah. Again, just kind of hanging around, not really with any true storyline besides he gets sick. Right. Is that Creed? Is that just original? That's Creed, Creed one. Creed two is just yeah. Like, okay, which is great. Uh, yeah. He's here. <laughs> yeah, he's he's hanging around. He's better, but he's trying to find a reason to keep going and you know get back in touch with his son. Feels very like self reflective of his own life. It's just like this is not a Creed movie. This is really kind of just like a Rocky movie. It's well, a Rocky they even movie. made <laughs> they've even made the villain Ivan Drago's kid. The Rocky yes, villain exactly. son, like, yeah, like, sure, yeah. sure. Drago killed Creed's dad, but ultimately, it's about Rocky being like, "I should stop that fight again." Like, it's that yes. whole drama again. And yeah. so, uh, as we end this podcast here soon, um, I just, I, I love this guy so much, and I wanted his career to go so differently when I watch Rocky every time because he's smart enough. He's he's intelligent enough. He's good enough is the most important thing. This isn't a guy that I'm like, well, if he he if he had worked with the right guys, maybe he could have gotten the chops he needed. He had the chops. He's had them since '76, and he just he just blew it. You blew it. <laughs> and I don't I don't think he's he's blew it. He, I don't think he blew it his career, and I think he's happy no. with it. But I also, in the slide documentary, he does say that he has regrets about things and he wishes he had done different things. And these, this has to be one of the biggest professional regrets he has in his life because he, he started this as an actor, wanted to be accepted, and he never he lost sight of that or he stopped caring or he thought he had it. And in a big way, he did. But when he passes away, which unfortunately is going to happen sooner rather than later, they're not going to go... Yeah, man, but like he's so good in that first Rocky movie. He's so talented. And the same with the first blood, they're going to go, Yeah, I like how there's a robot in Rocky Four. And like, you know, he wrote Rocky. That's cool. But like, what a fun fight. Or, oh man, remember Stopper? My mom was shoot. He's not going to be remembered the same way when De Niro passes and be like, That's a titan of the acting industry that has passed away. When Stallone passes away, it's going to be the iconography behind him far more than the filmography that he left behind. Out. preach brother it's just i just i love you sly and uh i wish you'd done things differently but it's why we're talking about first blood today um but before we get out of here there's someone else we gotta talk about he's another <laughs> colonel maybe a colonel troutman type possibly he is uh colonel tom parker so let's start that music i am the legendary colonel tom parker you look lost Get ready for the spotlight. This is one of the better supporting actor movies we have, too. Of like, there's no real distracting choices here. I don't know if you disagree. Then I'm like, oh, I don't like that one. Like, that's weird. 
No, and like even the people who are like maybe going a little over the top, I think are supposed to be kind of stupid hicks. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't feel like out of place. Yeah, so we just have a couple of good ones I want to run through down like real quick. There's really just two. Uh, Jack Starr is Art Galt, A plus voice, just like incredible Western Sam Elliott esque drawl. And Kotchev is so smart to cast this guy in this role because he goes, What do you know about that? Old Harry here's a soldier. Rambo. John Jay? Like, <laughs> the way it comes out of his mouth, it just sounds so cool. And, like, that's a total trailer line. Or when he looks back at the helicopter, he's like, if you don't fly this thing right, I'll kill you. It's just, like, yeah. excellent, excellent casting. You're like, give the cool guy, the cool voice guy, this cool role of, like, insane person. Or when, like, he's like, he means it. And he goes, you bet your ass out there. <laughs> He's 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 not distracted, but he's just like chewing every opportunity he gets with like that voice and that draw. And I'm like, yeah, you go, Jack Star. Let's go. Yeah, he's cooking, and he meets a pretty timely fate, though. Oh, <laughs> well, he deserved. I love that. Like this yeah. movie, Oscar's gonna shy away from like his. Hold him still now. <laughs> They're trying to shave him. <laughs> this movie doesn't shy away from like his smoking corpse on the rocks with a bloody face. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. That's that's hardcore. It gets pretty hardcore with that part, yeah. I was it surprised does. as well. It shows like him full frontal. Yeah, it's crazy. And then Rambo's like, I'm a thicker colt. And it's like, cool. Good for you, John Jay. Rambo, Smart John Jay. Yeah. <laughs> I took the, ra- took the radio. Man, God, he's, he's good at this war thing. <laughs> yeah, we should put him in war. Oh, we did. That's why we started this whole, f- this whole conflict. <laughs> Next nominee, David Caruso as Mitch. Uh, he's fine. It's a pretty whatever part, but he's only on this nomination because he's David Caruso, and it's kind of weird yeah. to come back to this movie <laughs> and see him as it's like, oh, Chief. I don't think we should do this. This guy seems pretty serious. It took me a second to like be like, I, I wanted like confirmation and not to look it up. I was like, is that David Caruso? And then I looked it up. I was like, that is fucking David Caruso. <laughs> yeah, it seems a little out of place without him not putting sunglasses on yeah. and hearing the who kick on out of nowhere. So that was my only kind of drawback. Other than that, I think Rambo's 10 out of 10. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like, he's just there. But every time he's on screen, I'm like, that's David fucking Caruso. What's he doing here? That's crazy. Look at him go. The the final nominee, I think our, our, our winner is John McLean as Orville, the dog guy. Another guy with a great Hello. voice. Oh, kill him, girl. <laughs> He's got the dog. This Those is dogs my... are fucking... That, that gets fucked up super fast, dude. The dogs didn't stand a chance. So I'm being like, you can't kill people. He will massacre dogs. It's definitely like one of the more confounding things about this movie. They're like, they make it abundantly clear Rambo killed those dogs. And I'm like, you didn't have to, Sly. You could have written around that. Yeah, he but... did. No, he had no. to. They're making too much noise. <laughs> Anyway, when McLean has slipped some ham dialogue, this dude just chews it. I'm just like, I'm in favor of giving this award to a guy if he's in the movie and he says like, get that son of a bitch! You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the yeah. way he's like, my babies could eat and run at the same time! It's just like, <laughs> it's such a good little like accent voice work. Oh, it's good. Who are we giving it to, Josh? You decide. It's gotta be McLean. I mean, just like... That, that could eat and run at the same time. It's just like, yeah, you do it, man. <laughs> it's time for us to run out of here, folks. Another edition of the Road Dog Podcast meets its end. Like, rate, subscribe. Check out that Instagram, road underscore dogs underscore podcasts. We'll see you next week with who knows what. Road Dogs out.